May 40 here. There's a pretty funny hashtag going around on Twitter that Elon Musk has endorsed, and that is Ben the ADL. So the Anti-Defamation League is both an ethnic lobby and probably the premier force in the world for restricting free speech on public spaces, particularly social media. On the other hand, how different would the level of restrictions be on social media and the public space if there were no ADL? I'm not sure they'd be that different. But uh, Duvid got into it with History Speaks, Matthew Gabriel. And so let me play some of this Twitter space here, but posted by the Twitter account History Speaks. He's a PhD student at the mainstream uh, authorities. Maybe so note that people will be able to come back. Here. Um, so okay, here we go. Right? I've been um, perturbed by this whole ban the ADL thing, and here's why. If you followed me, you know that I have no sympathy for this organization. I have no sympathy for people who are advocating censorship online. They're crazy left-wing organization. They've adopted the definition of racism that excludes whites. You know, I have no sympathy for this organization. So why would I be, why would I be perturbed? I should be happy that there's a movement against them. Well, I'm upset because I'm also not an advocate of race hatred, of anti-Semitism, of Nazism, of these things. I oppose these things, in point of fact. And I think, you know, obviously just a normal person here, I think mainstream society should oppose these things and stigmatize them. I don't think they should be banned. I don't think any of these people uh, who advocate such views should be banned from social media. But the fact that they are being validated by mainstream personalities on the right, and then perhaps the richest man in the world with Elon Musk, is disturbing to me, and I think symptomatic of a broader problem that's going on the right. There's just no guardrails, that the contempt for the left has grown to such a level, which is understandable, I share it, that it's basically just populist madness. And whatever the sentiment is of the masses at a certain day, right-wing influencers, whether it's Matt Walsh who endorsed this, Charlie Kirk who endorsed this, Markle Knowles who endorsed this, others I'm sure have as well, they just go with whatever the populist raving is at a certain moment. And that's very concerning to me. Uh, we can't overlook the cause of it, which is the failure of, of kind of mainstream authorities in our society. Um, you know, there are many reasons for the failure. One of them is, as I said, uh, why, I think like, white people feel alienated from them because of this crazy uh, discourse where, oh, it's impossible to be racist against whites. It's ADL, ADL endorsed, for example. But as we oppose that, you know, as, as people of different backgrounds, not just white people oppose this, a lot of different people oppose this. My mother isn't white. I don't really feel white or identify as white myself. Um, the uh, As we oppose this, we have to um, maintain so I think uh, Matthew tends to speak carefully. He tends to have a, a great deal of respect for, for facts. So I think he, he's making good, solid points here. And if you're interested, I believe his mother is Egyptian. In our society, the society that has been built in the United States for, for decades, which is one that, that is tolerant and rejects race hatred and Nazism and fascism. And when you empower people like this, I mean, Keith Woods is engaged in blatant Nazi rhetoric. He calls Jews parasites, right? He is engaging in apologetics for the Nazis themselves, which I've refuted on my page. This is um, this is socially destabilizing. It's dangerous. They should be allowed to speak. That's part of who we are too. That they're allowed to speak, right? It's part of who we are as Americans. That they're allowed to speak. But and you know that's changed in recent years. There's been some effort to ban everybody who has fringe views. I disagree with this, um, but that's it might be part of who we are too. But uh, it's it's disturbing to see these people validated. And uh, what's also laughable is the idea that people like Musk or others who endorse them are just blissfully unaware of the anti-Semitism motivating this. That's just a joke. I mean, I'm not even going to entertain that because if you believe that, you're either you know you're either you're either so ignorant of the basic facts that you just shouldn't be talked to. Like, it isn't that you're a bad person if you're a bad person, it's just like you don't know what's going on, so you're just not really worth talking to on this matter unless still you learn more. Either so or, or two, uh, you're just lying and being deceitful because if you know anything about these guys or look at their feeds, like, they promote hatred of Jews. Not hatred in the woke sense where you're, like, you're looking cockeyed at Jonathan Greenblatt, but genuine hatred of Jews. I don't agree with that. I, I, mean, I wouldn't... Here's another thing. I oppose the Black Lives Matter organization, right? The, the views they espouse, I think, are, 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 are divisive, destructive, 
uh, you know, uh, stereotypical contemptuous of whites. I would never jump onto some campaign to ban BLM from Twitter that was launched by David Duke and Andrew England, because this is obviously just a proxy for hatred of blacks. And this similarly is a proxy for hatred of Jews. So I'm not going to endorse this, and nor should you. You're being uh, socially irresponsible if you do. Uh, frankly. And yeah, I'm concerned that right wing, we, we've moved to the point where uh, the discourse is so open on the right, that there's just no, there's no constraints, there's no limits. That does uh, concern me, not just on this, but on other issues. We have to look at why, how this came to be, as I said earlier. But, and I think the left, the failure of mainstream elites has played a huge role in this. But um, just adding some speakers, I'm going to talk a little bit more, guys, I'm going to get your opinions. Um, and by the way, if you're on the other side of this, you know, I'm a free speech guy. I, 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 I emphatically, contemptuously disagree with your views, but you can, you'll be able, if you don't, you know, say anything outrageous, you can share your views. Uh, Errol may disagree with me, for example. I'll, I think he's responsible enough to allow to speak. But yeah, that's basically my take. Um, so three points. Um, th this is a proxy for hatred of Jews. This is not about one organization and its, and its influence, one. Uh, uh, two, uh, the substantive proposal itself to ban the ADL is an anti-free speech proposal. They should be stripped of any power to uh, censor discourse. They're a gross, uh, cocooned, woke organization. You know, they also, another problem I have with them is they conflate criticism of Zionism, with, which, which, you know, I'm a critic of Zionism. They conflate that with, with hatred of Jews, which is stupid. And then the third, the third point I'd make is this is indicative of just a genuine trend on the right with just, we have no guardrails anymore. We have to just have pure, whatever the, the, the populist discourse is into today is just what we have to endorse. And that, that's, that's of concern to me. Then the fourth point is the left has some responsibility for this too, because, uh, you know, they have, the failure of experts has basically led any, it has basically led any appeal to expertise and norms uh, to be just contemptuously rejected by the right. So I think I think there is some responsibility for the left too. And here's another thing the left is responsible for. Like, you know, they call so many people Nazis and racists. I've been called these things. I'm sure I will be, in the, I'm poised to be in the future. They've, they've overused terms like racism and anti-Semitism to the point that when you get actual people like Keith Woods calling Jews parasites and, and aping actual Nazi rhetoric, it doesn't have the same punch to say, oh, this is this guy's a neo-Nazi or because of the, of the boy who cried wolf effect. So the left is a problem here too. And also the ADL is just, just a hard organization to defend with, with, with what they're up to. It's very difficult to defend. I mean, it's, it's, that's why nobody, like, you know, nobody really likes them. If you look at their... Okay, that's uh, History Speaks Twitter account, Matthew Gabriel, a PhD student, history student of history at the London School of Economics. And uh, thanks to Duvid for pointing out that uh, Nathan Kofner supports this uh, idea of ban the ADL. So Nathan Kofner tweets September 2nd, the ADL an organization that exploits the tragedies of Jewish history, fraudulently claims to represent Jews and spreads vicious libel. It's literally one of the main causes of contemporary anti-Semitism. Elon Musk, if you want to fight anti-Semitism, don't ban Pepe the Frog. Instead, ban the ADL. And Kofner's response to the question, what about free speech? There is no free speech. Thousands of people get suspended every day for lawful speech. To make it fair, the ADL should be treated the same way as other hate groups, according to the rules that the ADL itself helped to write. And Nathan Kofner's published an article in Quillette on the ADL's practice of falsely accusing their political enemies of anti-Semitism. And scrolling through more of uh, Kofner's Twitter feed, he says... Uh, Norm MacDonald was right that Bill Mayer is the unfunniest person that's called a comedian. Bill Mayer is also the least intelligent person that's called smart and the least transgressive person that's called politically incorrect. Okay, so let's uh, get back here to uh, History Speaks. Matt, speaking here. Their, their Twitter. I mean, it's like I, they have like 10,000 views per like, I mean, which is just ridiculous. So... Um, nobody likes them. They're awful. But this is like a Nazi thing. Um, I mean, look at the people behind it. Pa Matt Parrott, uh, Keith Woods. You know, this is uh, Nick Fuentes. These are obviously people. This is a proxy hating Jews. I think I've, I've talked enough. I'm going to get some different uh, views on this. Uh, DS, uh, um, you can go ahead and then. Listen, I mean, 
I know people have issues with the ADL, okay? And you can criticize them. But to say they're gross, horrible, no one can defend them. Let me, let me just give you some background. Uh, I've been doing historical research about these uh, Nazis in the 50s and 60s. The ADL was doing some of the most important investigative work about these organizations at the time. This is really valuable work. They have the most long-running poll on anti-Semitism that researchers rely on. To just characterize the whole organization as horrible, I think, is just totally wrong. Uh, Can I have my opinion here? Yeah, go ahead. All right, so all I wanted to say basically was that – I, I think that the ADL would be better off um, talking about. Um, forgive me for the mic quality. By well, the way, I, I can't hear anything. If somebody's talking to me, I really? Can't hear. Yo, uh, can you can you hear me? Okay, or yeah. No, so I've all got, I was I've got I can hear you. Okay, good. So um, all I was trying to say was that the um the hey, ADL. Is someone else talking? Sorry, I can't hear anything. They, they should be better off like trying to debunk myths as opposed to like talk about why uh, why this is anti-Semitic or that is anti-Semitic. They should be better off like for example debunking fake quotes about Jews. Like for example, there was an Ishmael Levitz like quote from that said like for example how we need to like rape white people or something like that. It's obviously fake. It's obviously fabric. It's obviously fabrication. But the way that these people operate is they need to lie. Like I saw I Hypocrite. If you guys know the uh, if you guys know the uh, Twitter user I Hypocrite, he posted a fake link from something called the Jerusalem Postal. It's not a fucking it's not a fucking um thing. It's it's called the Jerusalem Post. But he photoshopped something from a Jerusalem Postal and it got like two thousand likes. So I think the ADL would be more liked if they started debunking um, shit like that and didn't like and basically left um, left like talking about like immigration and politics to like other organizations, you know? Yeah. So to both of your comments, here's the first one. I, I can I can I'm open to the idea that I'm being polemical or angry when I talk about the ADL. I'm frankly just personally fed up, and this isn't a polit- political argument, but I'm, I've had multiple people on the left um, try to get in contact with my university, attack me personally, threaten me with with cancellation. So I just do not have patience for these people at this point. Uh, who are, and I see the ADL as the ilk of these people. Like, oh, let's let's be the hall monitors and figure out who's saying something bad. You know, I just have no, and I don't want to live in a society like that. Even Nazi scumbag monsters who have no empathy for for the Holocaust victims. Yeah, they're disgusting. But I don't want to live in a society where some body of blue-haired white girls can just ruin careers or destroy people based on whether they consider something to be hate. Because they're going to not just say the Nazis, they'll say anybody they disagree with, like me, is, is, is hateful. And I'm not a hateful person. So I just see the ADL as of a piece with this very censorious group of people that don't want you to be able to make a life in mainstream society. Now, they haven't gone after me, so I'm not talking, saying, claiming that's personal. But I just see them of a piece with these people that don't want anyone right of center or with kind of edgy views on any question uh, to be able to make a living in mainstream society. So, yeah, there could be some impatience or exasperation on my part. I'm not claiming they've done nothing in their history. I don't know much about them, really, other than what they're doing these days. So um, anyone else want to um, contribute? Yeah, if I could. Yeah, yeah um, I think I mentioned, uh, I think the ADL on net is really probably does a lot more harm to Jewish people uh, rather than it ever does help. At least in, in recent years, it seems like you know, all the... Uh, kind of exaggerated. You point to a couple examples of, you know, only white people can create racism. Uh, uh, 17% of the numbers, one through 100, are, you know, racist or or hateful or or what have you. Uh, I think all that really does is uh, just kind of, um, I don't know, inflames normies, I guess. And uh, it's why we get kind of, you know, that you mentioned kind of the guardrails have come off, you know, all the censorious approach. There is uh, Matt talking about Nick Fuentes. He talks about the glorification of hillbilly culture on the right. Right, recently represented by the promotion of the abysmal rich man, rich man from Richmond song is cringe. Still, this is sociopathy from Nick Fuentes. It exposes his Catholicism as a sham. Compassion for the poor is a core Christian duty. So this is Catholic Nick Fuentes doubling down on his recent rant about poor white people. Here we go. The people of this country are furious. They don't like my hatred for the poor. They don't, they don't like that, and I don't know why. I don't get it. Uh, 
but I don't care because I do fucking hate the poor and I hate poor people and I hate poverty and I'm sick of lying about it. I'm, I'm not going to pretend that I don't. Okay. I love the rich. I don't, I don't have any animosity for the rich men of America. Okay. The people. Okay. That's just funny. So I don't know to, to go after Nick Fuentes for that, I, I think was uh, pretty weak. Uh, that was just, that was just a funny bet. Okay, back to History Speaks hosting a discussion on the ban the EDL hashtag campaign. Approach and you know, this heavy-handed kind of censorship, I, I think on that just, you know, really poisons the discourse and inflames hatred on both sides. So I'm I'm supportive of the kind of the, the, the movement to, I don't know if I necessarily want to see them get banned, but just, so, you know. So the, so the neo-Nazi hashtag, that doesn't poison the discourse, but the ADL does, huh? So you're talking about the ban the ADL hashtag? as the Yeah, the one that uh, uh, the Irish neo-Nazi and Nick Fuentes came yeah. up with, yeah. So, um, yeah, the, the source of the hashtag. So that's an you know, interesting point uh, you guys brought up. Um, so a lot of leftists, will, they'll say, you know, at least the, the ideals of the United we're, States. Are, you know, we're really debating this? Well, sorry, my, my point is just that, uh, yeah, that the source of it, you know, obviously might have its problems. I don't agree with, you know, the, the, all the views of those people. But, you know, debate the idea on its own merit. Right? I mean, you know, that's just debate the argument. Don't, you know, even, even if the people who came up with. Can, can, can I ask you a question? Go ahead. Who would you rather be on Twitter, the ADL or um, hundreds of prominent violent neo-Nazis? Hundreds of what? Prominent violent neo-Nazis. Uh, so you need to think about it. Okay. Well, that that's a good enough answer. So thanks for thanks. Okay. For, uh, My thing on this is, first of yeah. all, I'll say this. Uh, first of all, I don't I, I don't know that we can say I don't. I'm going to be accused of sticking up for these vile people, but I don't know that we can say Woods and these people. They certainly the neo-Nazis. Okay. The ADL has billions of dollars behind it, so the ADL can do perhaps can do a lot more damage than uh, neo-Nazis who may well never have even graduated high school. Uh, on the other hand, uh, neo-Nazis are far more likely to commit violent crimes than members of the ADL. So... See, is reasonable, but I don't think we can say they've advocated violence without evidence, because that's a, that's a different level in this. I, I'm not, I, I'm not, I wasn't necessarily talking about him. Yeah, I'm not aware of the Anti-Defamation League advertising violence, it's a left-wing pressure group that uh, uses the, the uniform of fighting bigotry to pursue its own agenda of bigotry. Okay. Yeah, I'm just, I was just asking hypothetically. All right. Anyway, uh, the other point is where I agree with you and I strongly disagree with Errol is I think at some t at sometimes people say, oh, guilt by association. At some point, you know, if, if the instigators of a movement are all extreme, hate-filled neo-Nazis, you, you have to question the motives of the movement. It's like if... If, if there's a reasonable sounding cause and you find that um that everybody that all the people behind it are pedophiles you have to wonder what the motivation uh -huh. is even if the even if the cause doesn't seem to be about pedophilia right so i'm, I'm not saying that neo-nazis are as bad as pedophiles but my point is you can't have an absolute aversion to to guilt by association even though that's almost a cliche you have to look at what the motive is and i think it's obvious what the motive is they, they, they see this organization as uh, disliked widely disliked on the right as akin to like the splc and so on i've criticized them many times for example uh, i don't like them and the, but they're using that as a way of basically trying to associate all Jews with sensory with a lot with the parade of horribles they don't like, like censoriousness and controlling things. And they're just it's obviously a sham. My point is, it's obviously a sham to promote like hatred of Jews, because you, you just have to, at some level, exercise common sense and say, why are neo-Nazis all behind this? And why is it or why is the originating? Why, why is it originated by them? I mean, it's not these are people who believe in free speech themselves, really, you know. Well, isn't it obvious, though, that uh... I mean, the main people who are, are the people that have been at the brunt of the ADL are the people that have been on their watch list that have been pushing to be banned. So if you're looking like uh, the main names in it, Lucas Gage. Uh, All right. Duvid speaking here in this history space. Keith Woods. 
uh, you know, someone, uh, Nicholas Fuentes, Adam Green, these are all people who have been censored by the ADL for years that the ADL made a specific point to try to censor them. So it's just a coalition of interests. So like Elon Musk has his own problem with the ADL because the ADLs went after him. The ADL is continuing to go after him. And then there's the issue of, yeah, the counter Semites. ADL does a lot of things, but its essential thing is protect the Jewish people. So its main, um, you know, so say victims of the ADL are anti-Semites. So obviously it's similar to Richard Spencer when he had his, uh, you know, veered into the far right by teaming up with the uh, you know, vicious anti-Semites and with just a convergence of interest. Uh, so I think you have to differentiate it between Elon Musk, conservatives, their problem with the ADL, and just the fact that they're teaming up with the people, like, uh, and then even to divide the numbers, let's say there's 100,000 people right now that are actively, you know, pissed at the ADL, probably only 10,000 of them are vicious anti-Semites, and they're just the loudest uh, voice in the matter. I think it's hard to know, so I was Duvin, uh, if you guys know him, I think it's hard to know if, um, what, what the average person tweeting this says, uh, but it's, I think that anyone who has any level of sophistication about internet culture and so on knows that this is like a neo-Nazi 4chan type deal, and it just comes down to what, whether you think there's any limit to you know, who you should associate with. Like, is ISIS okay? Or is, is, are pedophiles okay? Again, I'm not saying the, the Keith Woods is as bad as those people. My point is there has to be some principle where this is beyond the pale of whom I'm going to line up with politically, right? I'm not saying that Keith Woods is beyond the pale of, of what should be allowed on Twitter. I don't think he is. I think he should be allowed, for the record. But, but like, about you, you know, no, but there also should be some aspect You have to, make a, you have to it, team up with who it's going to take to win. And, uh, you know, so obviously there's a huge class of people like right-wing Jews, Orthodox Jews, uh, the broad uh, support of Trump supporters, uh, Elon Musk supporters don't like the ADL versus the you know, the far right uh, counter Semites that have been you know, pushing this basically every day for a year. And now there's just a convergence of interest. If it's Elon Musk basically saying like ADL, if you don't back up, I'm going to team up with the. And a good question from the chat from Laponius. How likely were members of the Jewish Defamation League to commit violence? About uh, 50 times more likely than your average Jew. So yeah, the the GDL, the Jewish Defense League, they. They were a frequently violent and criminal bunch. Vicious counter Semites. Yeah, I don't see. I don't see. I mean, like DS speak. I don't see. Yeah, yeah. That should be called out too. DS. I'm gonna let you call that. But first, the first point I'm going to make is, um, I think that people like Matt Walsh, um, uh, Charlie Kirk, Michael Knowles, who mainstream conservatives who endorsed this, they did it in a reactive way. It wasn't like, oh, let's team up with the Nazis because we don't want the ADL. They felt like pressure from their people to yeah. do this, which which is also disturbing because I don't want, you know, somebody who identifies myself with the right. I don't want the right to. Con I want the right to fight anti-white garbage. Yeah, so much of you know right-wing punditry is really low IQ, just jumping on board with whatever's popular. And I agree with, I agree with Matt's critique here. I'm trying to stay open to Nathan Kofnis's point as well. So I don't have no, I I don't support ban the ADL. So I guess I disagree with Nathan Kofnis, and I guess I side with with Matt here. I don't think I've ever said anything positive about the ADL. But they do do some good work, right? They help to keep track of, you know, people who are looking to commit massive numbers of violent crimes. So they they do help uh, help uh, improve a detection of potential mass murderers. They do have programs to help uh, organizations to keep themselves safe from the attacks of mass murderers. So, I mean, until now, I don't think I've ever said anything positive about the ADL. But now when you, if you put, put a gun to my head, yeah, there are some good things the ADL does. I, I do not support ban the ADL from, from Twitter. I want the, the right to fight against censorship, including people like Keith Woods and so on. I do not want the right, and I'm appalled at the idea of the right, lining up with people engaged in race, hatred, Nazism, Jew hatred, etc. So now go ahead, Diaz. Because I, I wasn't, I wasn't, I wasn't um, condemned. I was honestly just curious why. What... And a good 
point in the chat. Elon Musk says that uh, Twitter's advertising revenue is still down 60% in the United States and that the Anti-Defamation League is mostly to blame. What's with the term? But you, let me, just a larger point. Um, I just want to directly ask. So I think, I think you're, you're an academic, right? So I'm I training. training. It's most... for some reason by everybody, but I'm not a historian yet. I'm going to be in like two years. But yeah, go ahead. Okay. So I believe the most long-running, comprehensive, um, data we have on anti-Semitism in America is, is an ADL poll that they've been doing for decades. You dislike this organization so much, you'd prefer that they just had never done that? Well, th- that poll is really bogus. So if you believe that Jews have disproportionate power, that's counted as anti-Semitic. But there are areas in life where Jews are disproportionately influential. So there are all sorts of things that the ADL classifies as anti-Semitism that are not, that, that are simply noticing reality. Yeah, I think that most right-wing Jews, most... Oh, no, no, I wasn't... Sorry, sorry. I was asking... For ADL. So there's a large swath, like 20 okay, percent of the population that always dislikes ADL. Let me ask you a question to me. Um, I don't want them to be banned or anything like that. I would like them to lose the ability to, like, influence corporations to ban things. No, no, I'm saying, you. do you wish that they had never, like, had gone under decades ago and they'd never I have been to be, able I to have do that, that, that research? I, I don't understand this claim also about this guy who's accused of these horrible crimes, whether he's innocent or... I, 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 this is a question I have not done research into. I can I can see in the, in the contemporary world, I see them as a, a woke, cocooned, naive, li- like, effete liberal group that wants to, like, ban people they don't like, which which I... Uh, yeah. uh, may I object to play a... Let me let both Leg Day speak and um, Hero Justice, because both of them are, have a lot to offer and they haven't spoken yet. But either one of you go ahead and then the other speak and then do the quiet down for a second. I'll let you speak later, okay? All right. So okay. it seems that the uh, the ADL and their enemies have like a weird sort of symbiotic relationship where on one hand, you know, the more uh, extremism there is in the world, you know, the more, I guess, reason the ADL has to exist and the more like censorious uh, the ADL gets, you know, the more ire they're going to provoke. So it's kind of like a, a self-perpetuating cycle. Um, but what I wonder is, I'm not sure that, you know, not that I think the, the strategy of censorship is the... Okay, in the chat, we've got someone saying Jews are disproportionately represented in leading anti-whiteism. Really, are they that much more, you know, woke than, say, Anglicans, Episcopalians, than uh, mainstream Protestants? I, I don't think there's any evidence for that. I mean, there are plenty of countries in Europe with very little uh, Jewish influence, with very few Jews, such as Sweden or, or Germany, and they are just as, you know, woke and left-wing as countries such as the United States with a substantial Jewish population. The best thing, but I don't know if it ultimately will break down because, uh, or, you know, it will lead to some sort of institutional failure. Because it seems what's happening is that sort of uh, the left is getting more like ensconced in their epistemic framework of trusty experts. And then the right is getting more ensconced in their epistemic framework of, well, we'll just believe the opposite and, you know, whatever, whatever that leads us to, you know, aliens, uh, they're this flat, whatever. And it seems like the more crazy the right gets uh the more dangerous they get in a way but they also become more ineffectual i think like uh, unable to like seriously control anything just out of like pure uh wackiness so i wonder uh, i wonder if uh at the end of the day uh you know i, I guess it could it probably will lead to like more attacks but it does seem like uh, the ADL strategy in a very weird way works accidentally can i can i just interject right, go ahead like the and, then, and then i want to hear from robert because he has a chance to speak but go ahead like Okay, I, I just want to interject something here. Um, I, I think this illustrates the fact that anti-Semites have a very, very difficult time grappling with reality. The reality of the ADL is that it gets attacked as much from the left as it does from the right. And it doesn't have, it, it's not entirely about their stance on Israel. It's, um, it's about their, it's, they, they cooperate with law enforcement and they have, a, because of that, they have a very poor relationship with BLM and with a lot of the progressive groups. 
So, I mean, yes, they're a Zionist organization, but, you know, given the fact that Israel's been around for almost 80 years and half of the world's Jews live there and they're a Jewish organization, I mean, they almost have to be a Zionist organization at this point, just, you know, the facts on the ground. And I, I don't think that they understand, like, I don't think the people on the far right just, like, understand what the ADL actually is. It's, it's, uh, it, it's an ethnic organization, just like, you know, there's, there's, there are Assyrian ethnic organizations and Armenian ethnic organizations. And I mean, because of that, it's, it's pulled in different directions. I mean, there are Jews who are very liberal, who want a more universalist agenda. And there are Jews who are more particularist, more conservative and particularist, who wanted to focus solely on protecting Jewish interests. So the ADL does contradictory things because there's different people within the organization who have different agendas. Um, you know, and, and it's just like any other organization because Jews are simply people like everyone else. And um, but I, I don't know, anti-Semites have a hard time grappling with this. So, I mean, you know, I'm not the biggest fan of them as an organization. I agree with DS that they do a lot of good research, um, you know, but they're one of the few uh, people who actually do, attempts to research anti-Semitism in a sort of dispassionate way. But obviously the organization itself has an agenda. And uh, so, I mean, I, I get why it's problematic. I just, I just don't think that the people on the far right have a grasp on reality of what the ADL even is. Let, let, can I just say, just to follow up on that, again, if anybody... Does any archive research on um, neo-Nazi groups in the 50s or 60s or 70s, you will see that basically you are reading a lot of the fruits of the research that the ADL did, archiving publications, just doing basic research. So I, I, I think the uh, legacy of the group, look, I, I'm not, I'm not going to defend everything about it. I don't know everything about it. But overall, that they, they've done a, a substantial amount of research on uh, the most violent and extreme neo-Nazis. And I see that as a good thing. I mean, I, I, you know, that is a good thing that they did. They did some research on the most violent and extreme neo-Nazis. I mean, I do think that politically, I mean, there's a lot about their politics that as a conservative, I'm not comfortable with, right? I don't necessarily think that they represent Jews in general. And I, I don't think, you know, but the thing is, is that ultimately at the end of the day, they're simply an ethnic organization. The American Jewish Congress is, is composed of like 50 different organizations. And some of them are on the right, some of them are on the left. And the only, the only thing they have in common is they're focused to some extent on Jewish interests. So like the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society is, um, they attracted the ire of that guy in Pittsburgh. But they're a Jewish organization, but they also help non-Jewish immigrants. And they, I guess they do legal work for them and they give them, you know, uh, financial support and stuff and they help them in some way. Uh, but, they, you know, it's, it's part of the American Jewish Congress. And then there's other organizations like the Republican Jewish Coalition, which are conservative, and the Zionist Organization of America, which is uh, supportive of the, of the more right-wing parties in Israel. But they're also, um, they're also somewhat more supportive of, of the, of the right-wing in, in America, too. So, um, you know, it's just like any other organization that's out there. There's nothing, you know, magical or special about the ADL. I mean... Well, they're worth studying, they're worth learning about because they are so effective. I mean, they are well-funded, but they also punch above their weight. They're incredibly influential, just like George Soros. So George Soros revolutionized criminal justice in the United States with his selective donations of a million dollars here and a million dollars there. So maybe we should learn from how is George Soros so influential how is the ADL so influential? But, um, but also to be clear, if Greenblatt was replaced tomorrow, if the articles that the people complaining, what is it, the, the okay to be white meme thing, if, the, if that article was removed tomorrow and they said, oh, yeah, that was a mistake, all, all the points, it, 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 the idea that that would change these people's perceptions or they, they, the way they would use and attack this organization is, is ridiculous. It's ridiculous. It would be the same attacks. Well, no, because the ADL has a list of people that they want Twitter to ban, and it includes the most voice horrific names in the campaign that Elon Musk, I mean, like, for example, Keith Woods was banned for over a year. What, what, what do you mean? No, you're, you're saying they would stop attacking the ADL if they had a new CEO. Well, I don't know. I don't think it's that much about the CEO. It's about the ADL's campaign for censorship. And yeah. most, they don't of, like most of the people, like most of the people that are leading the, this campaign are on the ADL's list 
and the ADL was actually so your, upset your advice to the ADL is to stop. Your advice to the ADL is to stop um, uh, trying to limit the pro proliferation of violent hate groups. Is that is that what you're saying? Well, well, there's two things. I mean, first, just what Leg Day was saying. That, I mean, Truman, with the creation of APEC. Okay, let's uh, tackle a cliche in the chat. Virtually all Jews support mass immigration into white countries, but an ethno state for Israel. Where do you come up with this stuff? All right, most Jews, like most non-Jews, are not politically active. So 90% plus of Jews don't have a considered position on immigration. Now, those Jews who want immigration restriction and want to build a wall in Israel, right, if they're citizens of the United States, they want the same thing in the U.S., Right? The most Zionist American Jews tend to be the most right-wing and the most likely to vote Republican and to most favor immigration restriction in the United States. Left-wing Jews, whether they are in Israel or in the United States, favor more immigration and more multiculturalism. So by and large, Ashkenazi Jews tend towards the left, both in Israel and in the United States. But about 90, 95% of American Jews are Ashkenazi. In Israel, Ashkenazi Jews only comprise about 40% of Israeli Jews. So Sephardic Jews and Mizrahi Jews, they support building a wall, immigration restriction, right, for Israel. And when they live in the United States, they tend to favor the same policies in the United States. So right-wing Jews favor immigration restriction in America. And in Israel, left-wing Jews support higher immigration rates for both Israel and for the United States. But Jews like Episcopalians and Japanese Americans and Mexican Americans are not primarily thinking about uh, immigration politics or you know these lofty issues. They're just trying to earn a living and uh, take care of their families, just like everybody else. Back in the '40s, wanted a single voice to speak through the for the Jewish people. It was too complicated. All the various Jewish organizations, and you have APAC created. You have the conference of the presidents of the major Jewish organizations, which APAC is a member. APAC is you know, basically part of the Federation uh, Jewish Communal Relations Systems. In most major cities, APAC uh, resides together in the Federation buildings and even gets funded by the Federation. And it serves to deal with the community leaders, the police, the FBI, and the politicians through one voice. So the, the uh, Do you mean to say ADL or, or APAC? Well, APAC is uh, the member organizations are the, are the conference. Of Okay, Luke Croft says in the chat, Barry Weiss is pretty much the encapsulation of your average politically engaged American Jew. She is profoundly liberal in New York, blood and soil nationalist in Tel Aviv. She's not profoundly liberal. She's liberal in some things. She's conservative in other things. I mean, do you know anything about she has been leading the fight against wokeism in, in schools, particularly private schools as well as public schools? So she set up a substack. She set up a university to fight against the liberal hegemony in uh, culture and in uh, the, the news media. So she's, she's not some raving left-winger in New York and some blood-and-soil right-winger. She is fairly centrist, both with regard to Israel and with regard to the United States. In some things, she is right of center. In other things, she's left of center. Presidents of the major uh, Jewish organizations, of which APAC is like one of the forty-some members. Weren't we talking about the ADL? Yeah, the ADL is one of like the forty members of the conference of the presidents of the major Jewish organizations. Yeah, that's right. That was the organization I was I was thinking of. Conference of Presidents of Major Jewish Organizations. Yeah, yeah I, 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 uh, I forget the the, the new guy. I mean, you have the AJC, and I mean, there's a whole bunch of them. But APAC is you know, basically the defense arm of the uh, conference system that represents about you know, basically organized Jewry outside of Orthodox Jewry. That uh, Orthodox Jewry. She has the same positions. Barry Weiss has the same positions with regard to multiculturalism 
and immigration basically for America as she does for Israel. You, you can't provide any evidence that uh, her positions are different. You can just spout these talking points. Doesn't have to partake in the that system largely. But no, I mean, which uh, I'm pretty sure that that there are some. It doesn't aren't aren't a conference of presidents of American Jewish organizations. Aren't some of the people uh, Orthodox within well, that? Are Orthodox. Well, like, why are you talking about APAC? Because APAC also is uh, the collection of organizations in the conference of the the presidents of. No, no, APAC is ADL. The ADL is a member of APAC. Uh, so when you say, "Oh, Barry Weiss is for a multicultural West, but not for Israel," well, if she supports the the current Zionist state of Israel, it is incredibly multicultural. About 25% of the, the population there is not Jewish and is actively hostile to it, like far more hostile to it than American minorities are to the United States. I, I don't get no, it. No, I don't think so. I don't think that's it. I think I think you're screwing up the organizational chart. I think APAC is a member of the conference. Right. Of APAC is a member of the conference, but they're basically all united in one unit. And although they're well, are, I think I don't think they're like, right. I mean, they're members. Different we're talking too much into bickering about how how, uh, how it works. I mean, it goes back to Truman who wanted. I'm gonna I'm gonna impose some moderate discussion here because I don't care about the structure of these organizations. Um, DS. Um, uh, one question I have for you is you so you say oh that who cares that they want to get these hateful people off? And I agree that the people behind this are, are, are vile hateful people. But my concern with with investing in this power, the reason I'm against it, strongly against it, is uh, or investing even Twitter with this power to remove so-called hateful conduct, provided they're not advocating violence. If you're advocating violence, you should be off. But people who are bigoted. You know, the problem is on a blind drawing, we've seen with woke. And Laponia says that 25% of the uh, non-Jewish population of Israel was not imported into Israel. They were there, bro. Well, thousands of non-Jews uh, move to Israel every year, right? Uh, Non-Jewish spouses, uh, all, all sorts of people who, who are not Jewish are allowed to immigrate to Israel. That everything gets defined as racist. With Israel, you see people who are critical of Zionism, like myself, who are not Jew haters, get defined as, as, as the same as Keith Wood. So do you think that there is a concern about line drawing that might give you some hesitance as to whether, um, you know, it's, it's a good thing for organizations like the ADL or SPLC just to, like, provide lists of hateful people and say they should be um, removed or, or otherwise uh, have their reach limited? And then Robert should speak as well. That's what I do for a long time. Um, I, I'm a little confused by the... The ADL does not speak for the majority of Jews. First of all, the majority of Jews are not politically active. They're not you know, thinking in, in any kind of coherent manner about politics, including immigration policy or multicultural policy. So as far as active Jews, right, Jews who are active in Jewish life and, say, doing Jewish things like studying Torah, most active Jews are Orthodox and feel largely apart from the ADL's agenda. Now, if you're referring to... ADL represents the perspectives of most secular Jews who are politically active, then I think you're probably correct. The question, because it began with, do you think they should have this power? Uh, what the power to, they can't tell Elon Musk who to ban. And the chat says the Israelis just gunned down some Eritreans a couple of days ago. They're just allowed to do that and remain a respected member of the international community. So they just gunned down these Eritreans for no reason. These Eritreans were just sitting there studying the Bible and Israeli troops came along and gunned them down. No, the Eritreans were posing a threat to public safety. They commit a, an enormous amount of crime, all right? And when you engage in disruptions to the public safety and you defy police orders, I don't really care if the police gun you down. And that's in the United States, that's in Australia, that's in Israel, that's in Japan. If you defy police instructions and you continue posing a threat to public safety, then, yeah, I'm absolutely A-OK -okay with the police gunning you down.
whether it's in California, Tokyo, London. They have influence, though. Like, 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 like I would, I would be happy. Here's what I, I, I would be happy if Elon Musk, if, if, or not just Elon Musk, maybe Elon, they have no sway with him. I would be, I would be happy if we lived in a country where basically the standard response of every social media charity organizations like the ADL and SPLC. Uh, Israel has suffered invasion from tens of thousands of illegal immigrants from Africa, and they haven't, you know, gunned them down systematically. They haven't even expelled them. All right, so Israel has suffered. It, it would seem to me, just off the top of my head, proportionally just as much illegal immigration as the United States. And unlike the United States, where illegal immigrants are rarely African, overwhelmingly illegal immigrants into Israel are African. Right, very different people than Israeli Jewish citizens. Not really compatible with the Jewish state of Israel. A massive disruption, dislocation to the Jewish state. I, I hope that the Jewish state summons the will to expel them, just as I hope the United States summons the will to expel its illegal immigrants. I'm for the same policy for both countries. Expel illegal immigrants, whether that's England, France, Germany, Australia, New Zealand, United States or Israel? He would just be to say kick rocks if they say ban this person. That would be my preference. Well, uh, I, don't think, I, don't think I don't think it's your preference. But, but, wait, wait, but, wait, 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 wait a second. Wait a second. Let's, let's, let's be specific here. But, but in, in the general, before we get specific, I want to get – I have a specific question. I'm just trying to understand. But the general thing you bring up is, um, is about, like, should, should anybody be banned, you know? And so all I would say about that is we've run this experiment called GAB. Um, okay, I would support banning anyone who doxes meaning someone who publishes home addresses, I would support banning them. Anyone who encourages acts of violence, anyone who encourages criminal behavior, I would support banning those people from the public space. And I would be A-OK if uh, social media platforms chose not to amplify those who refer to different groups as essentially subhuman. So... Um, I, I, I'd be okay with if social media companies decide to ban such people. I'd also be okay if they decided not to uh, amplify their, their reach. But uh, no doxing, uh, no instigating of criminal behavior, no instigating of self-destructive behavior. So no encouraging people to drink bleach, anything like that. I would, I would be all down for, for banning such people you should go there check it out <laughs> well you know? would gab even exist if social media i'm sure gab is just a disgusting cesspool i'm sure of it. but but isn't that what you that's oh, i don't that's want gab. I, don't, the... I don't think you'd have gab if you had free speech on a platform i think most people would reject these ideas one of the reasons i'm, I'm having this space is because i want to encourage people on the right and the chat says so you confirm 95 percent of american jews are ashkenazi i believe that's correct and they support mass immigration in the u.s but an ethno state for israel i said no such thing i said uh Ninety-five percent of uh, American Jews are not you know, politically active, right? They're, they're not political activists, and they certainly don't support an ethnostate for Israel. American Ashkenazi Jews have the same basic politics for the United States as they do for Israel. So Ashkenazi Jews tend to be on the left in the United States. They tend to be on the left in Israel. They tend to be on the left in you know, various countries. to more forcefully reject these vile people behind this hashtag. I mean, right, but right, but the, you, I'm, I'm just trying to understand. So how absolutist are you against that? So I don't think you should be censored if you're not advocating violence 
or engaged in like uh, defaming a person as, as is defined under the law. I think if you're simply a, a bigot, you have prejudice against whether it's homosexuals, transgender, African-Americans, whites, Jews. I don't think that should be grounds for sex. Okay. Right. Nor, do, then, I, here's nor my... do I think, no, let me clarify. Nor do I think Holocaust denial, for example, should be because, and, and the reason why is I'm concerned about line drawing problems. Okay. okay. So, yeah. Does I, that so mean you have to get censored by the police first? Man. Does that mean they can ban people who say that what's happening in Russia, and I deplore what Russia's doing, but it's not genocide. So then okay. they'll say, oh, some blue-haired so, person will say, oh, if you say that isn't genocide, you should be banned. So I'm, I do not trust these people to line draw. Um, so, does that mean that so, people should only get banned if the police or some body has ruled that they violated that, that the, the Twitter should have no place in making this determination? And Luke Cross says, when I say that most Ashkenazi Jews are left-wing, you just mean that they're not in favor of expending Lebensraum in the West Bank. No, I mean that they actively fight to sabotage Israeli government's struggle to deport tens of thousands of illegal African migrants, that they are left-wing promoting uh, homosexuality, transgender, all the other things that people on the left in the United States support. They also support that in Israel. So those Jews who favor strict immigration policies for Israel also tend to favor the same for the United States. Those Jews in America who favor loose immigration policies favor the same thing in Israel. ...themselves, and they should only be banned if there's actually been legal uh, precedents to find them guilty it of... It doesn't have to be legal. No, I, I wouldn't say it has to be that extreme. But So, like, legally speaking, under the Brandenburg decision, if you advocate violence in an abstract way, it actually, if you say, like, the Jews will have to exterminate at some point, um, will have to annihilate them and kill them, um, that wouldn't be criminal, but I think it should be banned. Okay, uh, so here's my specific question. Let's take, uh, let's take Fuentes, and he gave a speech in July, and he said... Uh, we will make them die in a holy war, the, them being Jews. Okay, and it was broadcast on Rumble. Um, and this is a guy who's clearly s- said that, you know, he's very interested in doing pogroms, physical violence, physical attacks. Um, obliquely, he's smart enough not to just say it outright, but uh, there's a, a, a clip that I refer to as zero to 60. I would reference that. So what's the- Yeah, if this description, Nick Fuentes, is accurate, then I would be fine with the social media platform banning him if he is instigating criminal violence take this guy and he says his life goal is to like go to war with jews he said that on twitter actually let's take him so you think uh he should be back on twitter i would have to look at the comments that you're referencing i think that we have to we have to be careful about the line between hyperbole and a literal call to violence i will say if he's actually calling for violence against jews i would i would ban him he's not he's smart enough not to he's smart enough to know how to militant rhetoric whether it's a black panther or whoever, I wouldn't ban them on that basis. I would ban them if they are actually... Right. Every politician talks about we have to fight. So it's invocations that we have to fight, fight for our people, fight for our nation, fight for what we believe in. Right? I wouldn't ban people for saying that. In a way that a reasonable person would find to be literal, threatening to violence against a minority group or, or any group. That's my view. Well, our views on this really matter. Doesn't The real question is the lobbying pressure on Twitter to see to the demands so and say, well, as a Jew, I don't like that these people don't like me. I don't like that they're organizing against me. And Laponius notes that the Anti-Defamation League threatened to destroy Iceland's tourist industry if Ireland banned circumcision. Okay, so circumcision is a fundamental ritual in Judaism. So why would a Jewish group not object if you know, a key ritual in their religion was being banned by a secular state? So it makes sense to me that uh, the ADL or any Jewish organization would want to be hostile towards countries that wish to ban fundamental rituals in the Jewish religion. Why would they not? Why would they just be A-OK with it? And in order to defend myself, I'm going to pressure Twitter to kick these people off. 
I, I don't I'm not attacking Dovid because I, I don't I, I would I really don't know him that well. But I just I do have a Dovid story because it's funny. And I don't know if he remembers this. Do but, it. Uh, do it. What? Do it. Sorry, my, my fault. And you, you seem like a nice fellow, but uh, it's just funny because I did a debate versus this anti-Semite named Adam Green. And uh, and do, do, Duvid came on and he just came to the and, and Duvid is a he's an Orthodox Jew himself. And it was very bizarre because he was basically defending and backing up Adam Green. But anyways, just an interesting story. Yeah. For some reason, Duvid likes these neo-Nazi type. I don't understand it, but it's very well, it's uh, just yeah. allyship and saying that the, to me, the ADL is a bigger threat. Allyship. And I would say the Hasidic community in general feel that right. ADL is a bigger threat. Okay, so people who live on the margins, again, feel a sense of commonality with other people on the margins. So I have experienced quite a deal, you know, quite a lot of my life on the margins. So I can, you know, have empathy for other people on the margins. And I think that's what's going on with with Duvid and his empathy for, you know, other political distance. I think uh, Duvid feels like a dissident. And so he has above average level of empathy for other dissidents, even though on the face of things they may disagree on this or that, there is an, an emotional commonality between dissidents that includes people from Duvid to Adam Green. I, I think also dissidents who feel on the margins of their community and of uh, public life, that they're also the ones who believe that the United States is on, on the brink of civil war or the United States is on the brink of, of breaking up. And I don't think this reflects anything about the United States, I think this reflects what life is like on the margins, of which I have had quite a bit. I I wrote on the pornography industry for about 10 years, which very much put me on the margins of society. I've written about the alt-right on and off for years, which again puts you on, the, on the, the margins of society. So I know about life on the margins, and I know when I was a kid, there were two occasions when I tried publicly lighting fires when I was about age six, and I can't fully accurately place myself back in, in my six-year-old body. But I have a sense, I remember I was a pretty miserable kid, and I just noticed in the world around me that miserable people try to create more misery. People who feel on the margins, right, feel a sense of empathy with other people on, on the margins. I probably had an inclination at age six that I wanted the world outside of me to go up in flames, just like I felt like my own life was in flames. So I think people who feel on the margins, kind of not able to reconcile perhaps various parts of their own lives, they then take what's going on with them and project it out into the world around them. And so they see all sorts of impossible contradictions in the world around them because they experience all sorts of contradictions inside of them. On the other hand, people who are at ease with themselves and don't experience a lot of contradictions between you know, various parts of their lives, various parts of themselves, their relationship with friends, family, community, profession, educational institution, uh, church, synagogue, right, they are much more likely to you know, see or believe in a coherent, uh, functioning United States outside of them. So I think we frequently don't see the world as it is. We see the world as we are. When people are unable to reconcile various parts of themselves or various parts of, of their life, when they feel on the margins, when they feel on the periphery, right? When, when they can't you know, mend these various warring segments in, in themselves and their own life, then they're going to be particularly attracted to believing things like the United States is going to split up. 
I, I have one friend who just sees doom around every corner. The, the latest doom is AI, and then other doom is prosecuting January 6th rioters that uh, that's going to lead to a civil war. And then he had 15 other explanations for what would lead to a civil war and how the United States was you know, about to blow up. And this has been his perspective for about 10 years. And so I don't think any of this has to do with what is objectively happening in the wider world. But I, I suspect that for, for people with this kind of orientation, because I've had it, right? There was a time, 20, 2014, 2015, when I thought the United States was going to crack up, that there'd be a coup, that there'd be some sort of civil war, something like that. And this was a time when I was struggling with over $50,000 in credit card debt. My life didn't add up. My life wasn't reconciled. My life didn't work. And so I saw chaos and an impossibility to maintain the union inside of me. And then I projected it outside of me into the wider world. I think we all do that. We don't see the world as it is. We see the world as we are. A great article in the Financial Times, Donald Trump's status as an anti-hero is making him unstoppable. It talks about the appeal of the former president's mugshot, his inability to stick to the script. They are all part of the fascination. Right. He's only increased his lead in the Republican primary since that image of Donald Trump in Fulton County Jail. He's now 50 points clear of his nearest rival, Ron DeSantis, in many surveys. His mugshot has become iconic. And uh, Donald Trump looks to many Americans as a martyr. And uh, Trump is no feeble martyr. He is something altogether more based. Trump is the ultimate American anti-hero. So... Anti-hero is normally associated with fictional characters, but it's someone who plays the central role in a story despite possessing none of the virtues associated with a traditional heroic lead character. So the anti-hero tends to be a bewitching, unrepentant, amoral outsider who breaks old rules and creates new ones while leaving chaos in his wake. That strikes me as a very accurate description of Donald Trump. It strikes me as a pretty accurate description of many dissidents. So... Donald Trump's popularity was foretold by decades of pop culture obsession with and adulation for the anti-heroes, such as Tony Soprano in The Sopranos, Walter White in Breaking Bad, or Michael Corleone in The Godfather. People love anti-heroes because they are fascinated by their amoral, even immoral stance, a stance which the individual cannot really take because they'd get into trouble. So people admire anti-heroes for their transgressions, for their corruption, for their wrongdoing as a kind of aesthetic achievement. So an anti-hero is not a villain. Right. He might be twisted, but he's not pure, pure evil. So Donald Trump has all sorts of redeeming features. He has charisma, he has charm, he is relatable, he has huge stamina, and he is very, very funny. And he's unafraid to other things that others will not. Right? We love antiheroes because they say what shouldn't be said, but what we really believe. And they do what shouldn't be done, but part of us thinks it needs to be done. So Trump is willing to go off script and stick to what he thinks he should say, despite all his advisors saying, no, no, don't do that. So Donald Trump right now stands a very good chance of being re-elected president of the United States. Then these um, far-right counter-Semites. With regard to what you've been doing, like Corbyn or something like that, it pays to team up for common purpose in these cases. Duvid, I'm going to defend you for short-sighted. Uh, I, I think the issue is that 
right now, I guess you could say that, okay, well, uh, these mainstream groups that have the power of censorship are the bigger threat because they're the ones with power. And, you know, these guys are just, uh, these guys are just crazy. So, or sorry, not these guys are crazy. These guys don't have any power, so they're not really the threats to us. But I think that, like, in order for them to be able to help you, like, in order for allying with them to actually gain you anything, they would actually have to have some sort of power. And uh, otherwise, allying with them wouldn't be worth your time, right? Right, I agree. If they had any sort of power, then... Uh, you know, other than the argument that, well, they're powerless, so they're not a threat to us, doesn't make sense. So I, I I'm, think, I'm not uh, trying to get people to bash Duvid, just to be clear. I'm not trying to do that. Can I make a quick point in defense of, of Duvid? It's, it's not really a defense. It's just, uh, okay, um, earlier we were, we, uh, uh, History Speaks interjected that, you know, we don't have to talk. And Duvid says he learned way more Torah and what the rabbis actually say watching Adam Green than Luke Ford. Yeah, because, what, uh, less than 1% of my content is about what rabbis say. I guess he's right. Uh, David says, Adam Green is extremely careful to correctly quote his sources and to play videos of rabbis and exact quotes. I don't know how how scrupulous uh, Adam Green is in these areas. Am I biased towards Jews? Yes, I am a convert to Orthodox Judaism. I am biased towards Jews. Does this lead me to engage in confirmation bias in favor of Jews? I'm sure it does lead me to engage in confirmation bias in in favor of Jews. Yes, those, those are good points. About the organizational structure of these different groups and what their relationships are. And I agree, it's, it's not, um, it's tangential to our discussion. But I wanted to point out that the American Jewish community really is collectively better at lobbying in defense of their interests than other groups. I mean, um, you know, these different Jewish organizations are quite well organized and quite effective. I mean, APAC is very effective at getting their way. Um, there, you know, and, and that's just how, how it works out is that certain groups are very effective at lobbying and, and sort of the business of government, uh, of, of influencing government. And when you, when you're good at something and you can, you have some power, you have to use it judiciously. And I think that the ADL does not always use their power judiciously. And, uh, they end up pissing people off who aren't necessarily Nazis. Um, and, and you have to be smart when you have power and you have influence, you have to be smart about how you use it. We just do left wing, right wing. They're saying the ADL major Jewish organizations are left wing, Orthodox Jews and right leaning Jews. Do they team up with the larger Jewish uh, structure or team up with the right wing and say, well, I'm on the right wing. I'm going to join with the anti-Semites for these right wing purposes, not my fellow Jews who are on the left wing that have the opposite view on things like censorship. Yeah, but I mean, I mean, David, like that's still. Okay, David says in the chat, uh, Ford and I, we've never once interviewed a mainstream Jew. Well, I've interviewed probably over 100 mainstream Jews. I did a series on American Jewish journalism where I interviewed the 60 leading American Jewish journalists. This was in 2004. Did a series on American Jewish literature where I interviewed probably over 40 uh, Jewish novelists and short story writers. Uh, Also interviewed many rabbis. So I just haven't done it on video in the last few years. So I used to to be known as kind of the Matt Drudge of the porn industry for many years. And then I became known as the Matt Drudge of Jewish life. And I've largely largely disengaged from reporting on, on Jewish life. Uh, over the last 12 years because it is very difficult. It's very demanding. It's very painful. It's very awkward to report on your own community. So I've largely disengaged from it. Really, because like uh, Jews share collective interests and uh, right and left-wing Jewish organizations have to cooperate like to defend collective interests. Like in, any group that faces a problem like far-right anti-Semitism and being targeted with, with hate crimes and then, you know, for that and reason... That's the approach. I and mean, that's what the ADL is most hate. Like I would say, Hasidic Jews probably hate the ADL worse than uh, these counter semites well, well, I mean, at the end of the day i didn't think hasidic jews pay that much attention to the adl i i mean traditional orthodox jews just 
don't pay much attention to the ADL, except for instrumental reasons if they need help with something. You sometimes have to just align for common interests and common purpose, right? Like, like I think that like Orthodox Jews who think that like, uh, you know, um, who are very much appalled by gay pride parades, just uh, along with, you know, people who are very pro LGBT, whatever, just have to, you know, agree to disagree on like, on gay stuff. Dude, no, it's the exact opposite. In New York, it's the main dude, base, it's black crime. And the ADL teams up with police organizations and politicians uh, in the opposite way that uh, the Hasidic community would want tough on crime and to focus well, on the ADL should stop. That, the, the ADL should just stop doing that because that's, you know, if, if what they're doing is, is damaging, you know, their, their main purpose, which is to defend Jewish interests. And, and what they're doing is, is driving a no, wedge between them. They reform and catch and release. And looking at the chat uh, comment, what about white people? Are they allowed to defend their collective interests? Of course they are. And uh, I think perhaps the most important point is why do white people do such a lousy job? Why do white people find it so distasteful to engage in you know, racial spoils wars? Uh, white people don't really, don't really look at people like Al Sharpton and Jonathan Greenblatt as, as heroes and don't want to emulate them. Do, do yeah, I mean, they just drop it. I mean, because that they should just drop that stuff. Do, the ADL is a bigger. If you're Orthodox Jew in Brooklyn, the ADL is a bigger threat to you than any of these guys on Twitter because they're actively. I mean, that's not an unfair point. Well, I have a point there. I mean, like, I, I, like wait, uh, how is the ortho, uh, ADL a threat to you if you're a traditional Orthodox Jew in Brooklyn or in Crown Heights? Uh, I, I just don't think the Anti-Defamation League matters to traditional Jews, except in an instrumental way. If they, they occasionally need its help. I think uh, what you're, the reason why these guys are a smaller threat is because they're the losing team. Siding with the losing team isn't going to get you any political power. So I, they're uh, not our neighbors. Like, I, I mean, the, well, these guys, they're, and they're not our neighbors. They're not like they're in red states. You know, Keith Woods is in Ireland. If you're in Brooklyn, uh, the, the ADL's policy pushing for uh, bill reform and various. Uh, Nick Nick Fuentes is in Chicago, buddy. Are there any Jews in Chicago? I think well, funny, but he's also in a different neighborhood and saying. Oh, he's in a different neighborhood. It's no big about, deal. About no big crime. Deal. So, like, Maybe even though Nick Fuentes has his opinions about the Jews, is it more important that he agrees about law and order and strong policing than his counter-Semitism? Yeah, you shouldn't, if you're Jew, I'm, I'm not Jewish, if you're Jewish, you shouldn't align with people who are some of the people who murdered your relatives. It's just pathetic. Like, you're not a man. Yeah. Look, I, I, I'm saying this as a non-Jew. If I see a Jew sympathetic to Nazis or neo-Nazis, like, I don't consider that to be a man, frankly. Like, no, if you're, like, you're that much of a cuck. No, I mean, you're missing the main point. So if you're in Brooklyn and your main issue is black crime and you're teaming up with anti-Semites in a different part, you know, like, say, Staten Island, and you're saying, OK, those guys don't like us, but they're in a different part of town. And our main issue is black crime. They're not the ADL. Like Giuliani, yeah. just like voting Republican uh, for Giuliani, like Stop and Frisk. Like most Orthodox yeah. Jews like Stop and Frisk. They want Stop and Frisk re, uh, re-put in place and make pay. Let's just move on. Society, why would you Why would you? team up with a group that clearly loses every battle. Like, even if you, even, like, even putting aside the moral uh, reasons not ally with them, uh, you know, like, well, we did under Giuliani. That, uh, uh, Giuliani. So, so I also say there's a difference between somebody who may not like Jews that much and they have made an, you know, in, in his heart of hearts, he doesn't like Jews that much. Uh, maybe Giuliani doesn't, I don't I have no idea. And somebody who, like, Sides with the Nazis. I mean, it's just, it's just no comparison. Why? Why are we even talking about Giuliani? I think this is because Giuliani. This because is all anti-Semites also like Giuliani, but Giuliani and the the anti-Semites and the Jews had common interest in tough on crime policies. And in order for Giuliani to win in the election, Jews had to team up with anti-Semites in order to get a Republican in office that would institute stop and frisk. Okay. Well, we, I mean, just like Trump. It, it was really the creation of the alt-right and teaming up in order to get Trump in office for certain concerns. And that's what said. Like, okay, Nick Fuentes, he's like, okay, we don't like him saying all these bad things. I, I think that's a really bad thing. Teaming up with him for certain the policies. Like successful politics is Donald Trump. He didn't really do very much uh, once he was in office. Like, the problem is if you if you're if you're like idea is okay, we're gonna 
team up with the people who have the opinion that we like, and that's how we're gonna choose our teammates. That's not gonna that's not gonna win you. It's gonna get you victories. The way you're gonna get victories is by siding with the team that has more power. So I, I think this idea that oh, let's side with this team that has some of the same ideas with us. Well, that's choosing the losing team, even if they have the same ideas as you, isn't going to get you anything at the end of the day. Uh, it's it's more strategic to side with the winning team and then maybe get them to uh, moderate their opinions a bit and say oh, let's place our bets on like these internet schizos who are. Right. This is good analysis. The alt-right seems to overwhelmingly have an addiction to losing. They're not interested in being effective. They are acting out of some compulsion that placed them in the position of being marginalized on the periphery, you know, unhappy and unsuccessful in life. All right. They have these compulsions that have circumcised their lives, that have held back their lives, that keeps them in these endless cycles of losing. Uh, one manifestation of their endless cycle of losing is embracing, you know, extreme forms of politics that uh, you know regular people find extremely distasteful. But we we have these emotional states, and then we feel compelled to reinforce them. So the most intense emotional state that I have from childhood is rejection. All right, I, I grew up in foster care for some years. I, I remember moving about quite a bit as a child. So the most intense emotional experiences I had as a child were being rejected. And so my, my longtime therapist said I, I should call my autobiography The Uninvited. And so as an adult, I felt compelled to unconsciously recreate circumstances wherein I would be rejected and you know kicked, kicked out uh, again and again and again and again, because those were the most intense experiences that uh, I, I had as a child. And so too many people in, in dissident politics, whether on the right or the left, right, there are emotional, psychological, you know, spiritual, soul-based reasons why they feel very much on the margins, on the periphery of polite society. And so they engage in language and behavior and choices that will keep them on the margins because this is what is familiar to them. This is where they've had the, their most intense experiences of being rejected and pushed aside and kept on the margins. And so people tend to want to perpetuate that these intense emotional experiences of uh, childhood. So let's get Duvid here speaking with Ricardo. Yeah, dude. Um, yeah, it's funny. You weren't trying to destroy the guy. You were. You were being very polite. But I think he was just like, uh, you know, these these normie people. They... All right. This is Ricardo speaking about Matthew Gabriel, PhD student in history at London School of Economics, who hosted the Twitter Space on Ben the ADL. We just heard some excerpts of Duvid and Company talking with History Speaks, a.k.a. Matt. It just the reaction with like many of the things you say or many of the things that we say is just uh, he can't take it. He, he, and he is he Jewish or what is he, he's some sort of foreigner, right? But he's not Jewish. Well, I, I had mistaken. He, he's not Jewish. He's he, he's not a foreigner. He's, you know, born American. Uh, I, I, I don't think it has anything to do with Matt couldn't take it like Matt handled himself you know, perfectly respectfully and respectably in that, that discussion. So I don't agree with uh, Ricardo's analysis. Yeah, and I think he's American, but I think his father is Anglo or... and his mother's Egyptian. His mother's Egyptian. And he, it's unclear his background, like, cause, cause there were so many people on the panel and we didn't just get to talk, but it's possible that he himself was like a revisionist or a denier at some point. No, he was never a revisionist, never a denier. You can't be that reckless. 
and then he looked well, into it. And, I find uh, it interesting because the only mutuals I have that follow him are basically, you know, like the vault right types, you know, like Halsey English. And so it's like, why would this little crew like follow this guy? Because history speaks, Matt is interested in uh, some parts of right wing politics, the extreme right. And he's interested in Holocaust denial, not because he believes it's true. He's interested in it as a phenomenon, as someone who believes in history and he sees the the flagrant you know flouting of all the evidence based uh, suppositions for history, and so he takes it on as a hobby. Guy, well, because he's been putting a big thing into debating um, revisionists, and he was trying to use the minimal code for the YouTube uh, standard. But uh, so he sure, may sure. have started out as a revisionist, and then he decided to get his PhD in like World War II, and then he made a big deal out of like trying to debunk deniers and right. debate them. He went this like multi month long like really like two year long campaign to get Mike Enoch to debate him. And he finally did. But <laughs> he was like messaging Enoch like daily for uh, like weekly for like years <laughs> until he finally spoke. Okay. He was, I think he was messaging Enoch uh, daily, but uh, yeah, you have to put in some effort to get guests. And he particularly wanted to combat Mike Enoch on the topic because Enoch is a leading voice in that area. It was probably not a debate that was easy to arrange. Spoke to him and like he's spoken to a few revisionists, um, like alt hype or Thomas 777. You familiar with that character? Who? So, Thomas 777 is, I guess, what would be called a neo Nazi, uh, someone who's who's friendly to a Nazi perspective on life. Alt hype, uh, Matthew Gabriel refers to him as a frenemy. So, alt hype, he's this interesting juxtaposition of someone who often tries to come across as just very facts-based, statistics-based, but he's clearly driven by, you know, very strong emotions to, you know, some really weird, you know, anti-Jewish rants. But uh, he, he likes to do it in, in the guise of just uh, just sharing facts, man. Are you familiar with Thomas 777? It sounds vaguely familiar. I mean, was he back he's in like, the No, he's like, I think he sort of got as a bigger account after we were done. But like Pete Canones, are you familiar with that one? He has like a, he started out libertarian and like took the red pill and he has Thomas 777 on there. to like. Okay, so the chat says, Rabbi spit, spit on Christians. That's a common observation. Yeah, about point point zero zero one percent of rabbis spit on Christians, right? There'd be a high percentage of, of rabbis and Christian clergy who abuse kids than, than rabbis who spit on Christians. All right, exceedingly, exceedingly, exceedingly rare. But yeah, you could probably find uh, three, right, uh, for, for whom that there's evidence that they, they as a regular thing, they, they try to spit on Christians, right? So 0.001% of rabbis. Like, you know, who's like a, a revisionist. Not a very, you know, it's very subtle. I mean, it doesn't, you know, I think, uh, I think it's becoming subtle. kind of main. I mean, I, I was thinking about this other day, man. You realize, like, the things that we used to talk about on that show are, like, normal right-wing online discourse now in a lot of ways. Well, because, the, the, I mean, the Republican Party has largely fallen apart. I was telling him at the end, after we, talk, we were talking about the ADL, that, I mean, you, you have to be a white Christian to be a Republican. Well, well, it used to be that way, but I say that the demographic changes already occurred. That the, the traditional American Republican Party necessitated a supermajority of white Christians, and that supermajority of white Christians no longer exists, and therefore you no longer have 
the traditional Republican Party. So there's the attempts to like you know Luke Ford, Ben Shapiro, um, neocons, Charles Moskowitz types to redefine the Republican Party. Um, but I'm not sure. That, I don't think that's going to work. And is there like a George Bush? I mean, I mean, it sounds like you Bush. you are just like kind of out of politics now. You've kind of just like given up. Like you say, like okay, we lost. Are you going to bite? I mean, you could still be like, okay, yeah. Like, I mean, kind of family. I, yeah. Like, I mean, I, I would say that like. It's Oliver like, Anthony. It's the new world. Uh, you wish it wasn't, but like all the stuff you were worried about, <laughs> it, it's over. The demographics have changed. There's never going to be a super majority of white Christians again, and uh, you know, the nation's going. The nation's not going back. There's See, no, there's I don't, no I, I don't know, man. I think it's so regionalized. I think it's like North and South is like rearing its head again, particularly with like COVID sparking a lot of um, being a catalyst for even more migration. You know, where you know. Uh, red people in blue states coming south and vice versa. I think we're like sorting into basically geographic battle zones again. Well, I, mean, I think it's one of those things where the, they may have their supermajority, but they don't have it in large chunks of the country. I mean, it was you who got me to talk about this at length because I just kind of, you know, briefly thought about it, but until, you know, the conversation with Norvin and Rodney, uh, and then it was like a regular talking point on like half of our shows, the balkanization of America. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, like, I was, uh, this show defense politics okay so why were they doing so many shows on the balkanization of america all right because of the balkanization going on inside of us inside of me luke ford inside of ricardo inside of duvid right the the inability to reconcile contradictions going on inside of us an inability to cohere inside of us a feeling of being peripheral or marginalized going on inside of us and then that will cause us to project out and see a balkanized world, you know, all around us just filled with impossible contradictions and surely the center cannot hold, everything's going to fall apart because this is what we feared was going on inside of us. And so we project it out. Asia, yeah. the Russian uh, Ukrainian war analysis from this uh, guy from uh, Singapore. But, uh, you know, I, I see plausible scenarios now that like any day, uh, you know, especially regarding Trump and the arrests and, and uh, the election, that uh, America could split apart. You know, they could try to arrest Trump. Trump could seek refuge in a state that will refuse to. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And, uh, and you, you know, know, you know, that's never going to happen, right? I I wouldn't put the chances of this at even one percent, right? I mean, I don't believe there will be a United States of America in three thousand years, but. I, I believe that the chances that there won't be a United States of America because of some internal fragmentation in, in the next 40 years, I'd place those odds at uh, below 1%. No, remember our... Uh, especially the Russia, people on doubling down in like Ukraine, Russia. There's so many paths to the disillusionment of America that could happen any day. Yeah, you like remember... We were talking uh, about it five years ago, it was just hypothetical. I, no, I completely agree. And I just remember... Um, yeah, I, I don't believe we're that much closer to the dissolution of America than we were five years ago. Right? That has nothing to do with America. It has everything to do with the people who are attracted to seeing that kind of reality, where I, I don't believe it's actually there. Monsieur, it was probably October of last year, he like did this whole thread about... Um, he basically... Whatever happened to Monsieur has just gone off the deep end. I, I noticed after last year or so, his, his tweets are just crazy. Seems to have completely lost touch with reality. He basically for, said that the primary, the Republican primary process would, you know, split apart the Republicans and that there would be like some catalyst of like them trying to jail Trump leading to, yeah, like a governor, like someone 
Yeah, some, some refuge. And then, the, you know, if you're not sovereign, if the federal government is not able to go in and get him, then what else are they not sovereign in? Like, why would you send them taxes? So, but, you know, geopolitically, the breaking apart of the United States will be... Uh, the reason you send them taxes is because your life will be a lot easier if you do so. <laughs> you are cruising for a bruising if you don't send in your taxes. That's the best reason to send in taxes. Probably bad for Americans in terms of the ability to be dominated by foreigners. Unfortunately, that's kind of already happened um, in that. dominated in certain ways, like military. America is the most self-sufficient of all the major powers, right? We are less reliant on foreigners and on foreign trade than any other major power. Right? We are protected by these two enormous ocean moats. We have the world's most powerful military by far. We spend more on our military than all the other countries of the world put together. Barely. I mean, like, like, I mean, still think even if the U.S. collapses, that the U.S. is still probably from the best places in the world to be because, you know, geographic isolation, protection against, uh, provides yeah, huge resources, resources huge. and population, relative population scarcity that I would say yeah. even post collapse that the U.S. is still probably from the best places in, in the world to be. But, you know, it's kind of interesting in that I could see, you know, I mean, I don't know where David gets this idea that uh, I changed my mind like Richard Spencer in favor of immigration and multiculturalism. I haven't changed my mind in favor of immigration and multiculturalism. I still have the same basic views. I am for immigration restriction. I am for an end to immigration, essentially, to the United States. And I believe we need to put more effort into creating a dominantly unified American culture. So my, my views are the very opposite there. You know, are they going to put the woke away and try to like, is the regime going to kind of try to synthesize what they've done into like a new, a new uh, identity? You know, I think Trump in some ways is almost like being set up to like be the vehicle for the destruction of elect, like of democracy. You know what I mean? Like the right well, wing. Two things. The, you want to, I mean, like American identity is kind of like globalism, new world order or bust. And so you like Trump. And, and the other thing I said is that, you know, he, he, claim that like the left hates America. I said, well, no, the left just wants to redefine what it means to be American. But I think you mean like Richard Spencer's turn that the left at least has a vision for America. The, the, the right, the Republicans have no vision for America. And like, so at best you have like Trump, Ben Shapiro. Well, I think the right has a vision for America, less crime, you know, lock up super predators, uh, restore more freedom of association and rights of private property, uh, create America where Bakers don't have to bake, you know, gay pride cakes if they don't want to. Bro, it's just like some version of crony capitalism claimed meritocracy and constitution that's based on global dominance. And we're probably not going to have global dominance. So the left is the only one that has a vision for. Uh, no, I, I think there's that we're on a trajectory to lose global dominance. I, I think we're on a trajectory to have increasing global dominance in, in the years ahead. You know, the continuance of the multicultural uh, wokest experiment, and I mean, if you well, look, the at left, the, the left is the keeper of the vision on the on the right front. Sure, like, even you yourself, like I doubt, like you know, when we were talking five years ago, your vision was like, okay, we have to reverse demographic change and end immigration. Yeah, I like what autistic merit puts here. It sounds like you're mistaking a less confrontational, more thoughtful, more highbrow, more nuanced approach and style for a fundamental change of position. Yeah, I I think that's. That's accurate. I've taken my show in a more highbrow, less confrontational, more thoughtful, more nuanced uh, direction and uh, ha have uh, fewer blood sports and more thoughtful discussion.
but I still hold with with all the basic things that I held in 2018, essentially an end or severe limiting of immigration and taking steps to create a more coherent society in the United States to reverse the declines in social cohesion, social trust, to lock up super predators, uh, do away with affirmative action, and instead create a more merit-based society. And even at that point, I I want the American government and American society to favor people making the right choices and to punish people making bad choices. So the more we give to the homeless, the more we encourage homelessness. So I would like to see less subsidizing of antisocial behavior and more subsidizing of pro-social behavior. So I think that was my basic position in 2018, and I think it remains my basic position. Okay, I want to play some Charles Murray here. This was put up on YouTube seven months ago. They haven't taken it down. Intelligence, past, president, future Charles Murray and Helmut Nyborg. And the moderator is someone from Aporia magazine. Economically and technologically over the last several decades, since the war and so forth, that's great. But it hasn't harmed the culture in, in any ways that I've been able to notice. You've got He's talking about the glories of the Scandinavian countries. Got a great thing going here. And I'm in Norway and I'm listening when I'm at academic settings to people talking about how much immigration they should be encouraging. Mm -hmm. I want to say, why would you want to encourage immigration at all? We all know that social trust is, is, is degraded everywhere but by uh, increased diversity. And it's not that you shouldn't welcome with open arms all sorts of non-Norwegians as tourists and so forth. But you've so Charles Murray is a role model for me for how a public intellectual should conduct himself. Uh, Steve Saylor, another role model. Uh, Christopher Cordwell, another role model for me. Got nothing broke. Why fix it? But I guess that makes me what uh, a Norwegian supremacist or something, and so I'm a bad person. <laughs> I wish I wish I wish European countries were just way more comfortable with the ways in which they contribute to the world by preserving the culture they've got. Uh, this is perhaps the most controversial question I have, which is, do, do you think that a multiracial society is a, doom, a doomed project? Like beyond a, a certain threshold, there's a path determinacy built into it. I mean, you, you've written about this, you kind of, you've put a footnote, I think, in Human Diversity, where you reference, um, uh, I can't remember the book now, the... Um, the one with the red cover. <laughs> well, you talk about the idea. That limits that, it somehow. <laughs> the, um, you, I mean, you, you referenced the idea that essentially you know, it seems like slavery doomed America from the start. Yeah. And I want to know what it's, you think it's, this it's, is. Uh, the short answer to the question is, can society survive? We the people, that's the book. Uh, yeah, uh, by the people. Or Anyway, America proved that you can integrate other European cultures and and uh, mix them up mm -hmm. so that within a few generations you'd no longer had these kinds of ethnic communities in New York and the other big cities that you had before and you really did have an amalgam when people go to 23andMe in America they're coming back with German uh, speaking for myself German Scott Yes, in 2018, 2019, and 2023, I am opposed to the disuniting of America.
diversity means that we have less in common. So generally speaking, I think the more a society has in common, the more cohesive it is, the higher its social trust, right, the better off it is. That's Irish, a uh, couple of other European nationalities. But these are all European nationalities. And so we have proved that we can integrate that. Right. I was just in Sydney. I spent uh, four months of my last 18 months in Sydney. Sydney is incredibly diverse, but it is a type of diversity that seems to work, particularly on Sydney's eastern suburbs, the most affluent part of Sydney. I mean, there's virtually no crime that going on in Sydney when I was there. It's a high trust, highly cohesive and reasonably diverse society, but it's still got a dominant you know, white European core. Uh, we were... So the point is not all diversity is the same, right? There are certain types of diversity that seem to work and don't destroy social cohesion and social trust. And there are other types of diversity that cause high rates of crime, deterioration of social trust, uh, the deterioration of public spaces that cause people to retreat to their homes and to watching TV rather than volunteering and doing things together. So in the eastern suburbs of Sydney, there was no crime, there was no sense of menace, People would leave their phones and computers on the beach, go swimming, come back from the ocean. Their phones and computers would still be there. Remarkably successful in integrating the, the great tragic flaw of slavery and then uh, American African-Americans after slavery. But I, by remarkably successful, I'm not minimizing the racism that went on in the United States uh, after slavery, but you had lots of good things going on too with uh, music, with the, the arts and so forth in integrating. We were making progress there. It was difficult. It continued to be difficult. In the early 2000s, you could have made the argument that we were going to pull it off. Uh, yeah, so there are no flash mob attacks at... Uh leading retailers in Sydney. That doesn't happen in Australia. It's something that we're struggling with in the United States, in Los Angeles and San Francisco in particular. I don't want to get too deep into this because it's too complicated. I think America is now tested the limits of what you can do. And sort of the, the rule is this. A multiracial society not just multicultural, but multiracial society, which approaches equal proportions of the different groups is not workable. I don't think if you have, if you have one dominant group and I don't care which group it is, but one group that's dominant and then your racial minorities are each 5%, 10% of the population, you can make that work. I don't think we can make it work when Europeans are now down to 60% of the American population. Love. Okay, I'd expect uh, Charles Murray would be more careful. He's just taking U.S. Census Bureau statistics at face value. They should not be taken at face value because someone like myself, who was 116th Chinese, if I wrote down on the U.S. Census that I was you know, part Asian and part Caucasian, I would be counted as 100% Asian, even though I'm 15th, 16th, to the best of my knowledge, uh, Caucasian. So to someone who's a 1/8th black and 7/8th Caucasian, writes down on the U.S. Census Bureau form that he's you know, African-American and Caucasian-American, he is counted in the U.S. Census Bureau as 100% African-American. So U.S. Census Bureau statistics dramatically understate the proportion of the population that is of European origins. So we are not 
coming apart at the seams quite as dramatically as Charles Murray and so many others indicate. Uh, Latinos are about 20, uh, blacks are about 12, East Asians are about five and rising. Mm. It just looks to me like a lot of the consequences of, uh, of that kind of integration of different populations may be too much to overcome. Is this your take? Yeah, I don't think we can say that it's too much to overcome. Right, there are forms of diversity that, that work. There are, you know, many examples in history of multiracial, multi-religious empires that uh, that persisted for hundreds of years. So, I, I don't think that uh, that America's current levels of diversity are too much to overcome. I don't believe that we're on the edge of everything falling apart. Take a small helmet. Like, do you, do you look at a country like Japan, where you have ninety eight, ninety nine percent of them are ethnic? Japanese, um, and they, you know, they have a fairly conservative, strict society. I mean, society is a complex, knotty thing. So, you know, if you go onto the human rights record of Japan, you'll find that they also uh, traffic about two hundred thousand Thai women in a year, right, for you know, sex, sex tourism, or whatever you want to call it. So, you know, people often look perhaps on the right to Japan and they say, "Oh, that, that's the society we want to be." The point I'm making is that it's complex. But do, do you think that on the racial question? that might be the only way for a, an advanced technological society to survive. And Elliot Blatt says, can the United States survive excess scholarship? And yes, I believe it can. Out of all the major powers, the United States is best situated not just to survive, but to thrive. Thrive and thrive, the Japanese route, and formerly the Scandinavian route. I'm afraid I know too little about Japan to tell about that, but I have two comments. <clears throat> Your President Kennedy, John F. Kennedy, said once, this is a country of immigrants. But what he forgot to tell people was that was predominantly European people. And now we come to this. And John F. Kennedy was mouthing words given to him by the Anti-Defamation League. Right? John F. Kennedy wrote, wrote a book, uh, and <laughs> Profiles in Courage. It was written for him by the Anti-Defamation League, which then honored him and promoted the book. But it was written for him by the Anti-Defamation League. And John F. Kennedy would mouth all these talking points that he got from the Anti-Defamation League. Question of if you have multicultural societies, and you mentioned Phil Rushton, he had a genetic similarity theory. And basically it says that the more genetically you are similar to your children and to your uh, surroundings, the better you get along with them. I think that's probably true. Uh, biological children very clearly tend to be much better treated by their parents than adopted children. Uh, children tend to be treated much better by their biological parents than by step-parents. And there are some other studies showing that the more genetically inhomogeneous a population is, the more critical it becomes in terms of social uh, unruh, or what do you call that, social disturbance, criminality, and so on. If that is the case, and if there's some linearity to it, it means that the more genetically differentiated a population is, the more difficulties it will have living together and being productive together. And that means that if you're talking about these different ratios of people living there, you have people from Mexico, you have people from Hispanics area and so on, and you have people from Africa and so on, the more inhomogeneous Japan or Denmark or United States will be, the more trouble there will be. So that will actually be a sort of a, a, a quantitative... Look, not, not all diversity is the same, right? Some 
let's say you import, you know, high IQ, you know, highly industrious, uh, dedicated, you know, science-oriented groups into your country, you'll have, you know, much more entrepreneurship. You'll have much more technological advances. You'll have a lot of good things. The, these groups will pay far more in taxes than they take out in social services. So it's not like all oh, diversity is just equally destroying of a cohesive society, right? You can make a good argument that certain types of diversity will, will do far more good for your society than harm. The argument for keeping up the population as genetically homogeneous as you can. But that goes against what EU is doing, what United States is doing, and what people from the extreme left are doing. They will introduce genetically different people living together. And I know this is very controversial. Outbreeding depression. Yes. So I think that it, it is a matter of simple arithmetics of how different people are genetically, how successful they can work together in society. But you might disagree with that. Well, I'm, I'm not going to go to the wall about the genetic dissimilarity, although I, I find that plausible but cultural dissimilarity too. See, I have the experience of being a racial minority. Uh, I lived for five years in Thailand. My first wife was uh, a Thai woman. And uh, I love Thailand. And I had a very strong sense from the time I first got there of a couple of things. One was I never had Thai friends, <laughs> including my wife, who I felt I understood what are we supposed to actually do, atomize as we all are in America? Not everyone's atomized in America. You're talking about yourself. Many people are leading quite fulfilling, uh, harmonious, cohesive, coherent lives. There is abundant community that you can go out there and become a part of. Most people find it through church, through synagogue, through their profession, through through their education, through their hobbies. I mean, there are abundant forms of community. If you can't find community in America, there's something wrong with you. It's not America's fault. There's something in you that is unhappy with who you are. There's parts of you who can't accept who you are. Therefore, because you can't accept who you are, other people are going to have a hard time accepting who you are. So you are isolated. You feel peripheral and marginal, but it's not because of America. It's because of things going on with you. There are certain habits that you have, certain responses to stimuli, certain thought patterns certain reflexes you have which keep you alienated and isolated and marginalized. That has nothing to do with America. If you are at ease with yourself, you're going to be at ease with other people, right? The, the greatest resource you can have is to have a rational basis for liking and respecting yourself. If you have a good, solid, rational basis for liking and respecting yourself, other people will naturally like and respect you and will want to be around you and community will just well up all around you. I, I say unto thee, a table will be spread for you in the midst of your enemies. If you like yourself, if you have fundamental fair dinkum, true blue, dinky diet reasons to like yourself, a veritable table will be prepared for you in the presence of your enemies. Your, your cup will, will overflow. Um, goodness and mercy will follow you all the days of your life, and you will live in the house of the Lord forever. But you have to be at ease with yourself. You have to be high-functioning. You have to be conscious of what you really think, what you really feel, what you really want, how other people really perceive you, what your real strengths are, who your enemies are, where you get into trouble in life, right? You have to be conscious of what's going on inside of you, outside of you, 
you have to be conscious of irreconcilable directions, parts of yourself. You have to be conscious of where you're at war with yourself, where you're at war with your family, with your friends. You have to understand to what extent you have played a role in turning other people against you and alienating yourself from your family. Why are you poor? Why are you struggling? Why are certain types of relationships very difficult for you? Why have you had a hard time you know, building up community? How have you consistently sabotaged yourself and your own choices? And it's not America that is holding you back. The same way I understand a random American, okay? And it didn't bother me, but because I, I, the, the, the things that we grew up with were simply too different. Uh, and the, and whether the extent they were genetic, extent or cultural, don't know, but there was a distance there that could not be bridged, but I accepted that. And I also accepted that it was their country. And so when they had customs and norms that I might not agree with, the appropriate thing for me to do was to observe those norms. Because Right. So even if you have diversity, you can still insist on public levels of propriety. For example, prior to the 1960s, it was considered inconceivable that, that people would publicly proclaim uh, higher loyalties to their particular ethnic group or to a foreign power when compared to the United States of America. If you're in America, an American, you're expected to you know, publicly proclaim your loyalty to the United States rather than loyalty to some foreign power or to an ethnic group. After the 1960s, it became praiseworthy to put you know, your loyalty to your race or ethnic group or foreign country ahead of your loyalty for, for the United States, right? That's obviously destructive. Does not importing immigrants who outachieve the native population come with its own risks and downfalls? It does, but its risks and downfalls are considerably smaller than importing people who commit enormous rates of crime, particularly violent crime. Its risks and downfalls are considerably smaller than importing people who just suck on the welfare teat and don't give much back. So, yes, we need to become aristocrats of the spirit as... Uh, Bronze Age, as that Bronze Age pervert thinker says, but but uh, you know aristocrats are the the spirit without the the gay sex. Because it was their country, not my country. I, I for a time thought I was going to live in Thailand for the rest of my life. I loved it that much and loved the Thai people that much. So it wasn't that I was uncomfortable, but I've I've had a sense of as a small minority in a country with a very large racial slash cultural majority. I can't stand up and say, you've got to accommodate me. No, I've got to accommodate them because they're putting up with me. And, and that's not a fashionable way for people coming into a, a minorities coming into a country to be told to behave these days. It's what the United States used to say to immigrants. Mm -hmm. the, famously, that you can come here, but the deal is, Teddy Roosevelt said it explicitly, you come here, you become an American. <laughs> you, you buy into the whole package. Maybe we can recreate that ethos. I think it's a pretty good ethos. Package. And, and, and unless you buy into the whole package, it's not going to work. And people were relentlessly socialized into this is what it means to be an American. And if you're going to let people into Denmark and Norway, you ought to socialize the hell out of them and say, this is the way we do things here. You got that? You want to be here? Accept that. Yeah. Well, I, I recall a New York Times article a few years ago during the migrant crisis that was talking about, I think it was in Norway, uh, classes for male migrants, I think we can assume that they were predominantly um, Muslim, they certainly come from um, Islamic countries, about how to treat women, you know, 
for example, don't proposition them for sex on the street. <laughs> I thought, this is how we've it backwards. I think we've got it backwards. Um, and this was a kind of, you know, is, even that was couched in there. Isn't this wonderful, this compassionate? No, no, we shouldn't need to do that, should, is surely the point. Um, and I wonder now, like, whether there's a kind of a, a crossing of the Rubicon moment. As soon as we get into the discussion of genetics, inevitably that then leads to, well, you're, you want to preserve the white race. And, you know, people like Eric Kaufman at Birkbeck have tried to be very careful with this. Um, and they've written you know, a, a book in defense, you know, saying every other race can do it. Why not white people? But of course, that is the type of comment that gets you onto the uh, Southern Poverty Law Center front page as a as a white nationalist, yeah. rather than someone who is just a what 50, not even fifty years ago would have been a conservative, right? And and and, and my response to that is, if it's okay for Thais mm -hmm. to expect those who come into the country to adapt themselves to Thai culture, as I think it is. Is that Thai supremacy? No, it's not Thai supremacy. It's this is Thailand. Yeah, yeah. Well, if, if it's Norway, this is a, a land where Norwegians live, mm -hmm. and I know I know the white supremacy thing will be attached to this kind of statement. It is so frustrating because it is so far from an important truth that I'm trying to communicate when I say it's okay for cultures to preserve themselves. Interesting. A lot of black activists. Um, they they used to recognize this, right? They would say, you know, I'm thinking about the Black Panthers. You, uh... Okay, great comment in the chat. Yes, here at the Luke Ford Show, we embrace the wholesome, higher aspects of homo camaraderie while rejecting the sordid and less savory elements. Amen, brother. Uh, white people also have uh, a culture to preserve. And so, and, and ordinary black people, you know, not, not about Black Lives Matter, but ordinary black Americans, I think would, they'd probably recognize that statement as self-evident. There's a Yasha Mount, a Mount, he's uh, an academic, German-born, now in the, lives in the United States, has written a book called The Great Experiment, in which he says, the subtitle is Why Diverse Democracies Fall Apart and How We Can Make Them Endure. And it's a very smart way of a book in many ways. Uh, I ultimately don't agree with a lot of it, but he does have a nice metaphor. If you're going to try to do a multiracial society, Maybe the melting pot metaphor doesn't work. The mixed salad metaphor doesn't work. Maybe the public park metaphor works. The public park in which you have different groups engaged in different activities among themselves, uh, amicably, uh, you know, sharing the park. And maybe that's the correct metaphor, that if you're going to try this very dangerous, difficult experiment of having real diversity, not just the diversity of Parks are great, man. You go to parks, you can meet people. They're, they're social places. I mean, there are all sorts of very wholesome interactions that you can engage in in public parks. Having Dutch move to your country, but not the diversity of having uh, Somalis move to your country. Then the, then the public... So let me know if you want to call in and tell me about any of the wholesome, elevated, arist aristocrats of the spirit kind of experiences that you too have had at, at a public park. I mean, we need more inspiration in our lives. Public parks, that's where it's at, guys. Public park is, that's fine. There are certain things that, that uh, you can engage in. There can be these cultural things. But by the way... Um, yeah, there are certain things you can engage in in a public park, but don't write your name and phone number and say that you give, you know great rim jobs you know don't write that in public restrooms you know don't use public restrooms for anonymous gay sex or even non-anonymous uh, sex so there are lots of very wholesome uplifting 
elevated pro-social activities that you should engage in in a public park. Just try to stay away from the the, the more sordid and what, what's the other description? Yeah, the the stay away from the sordid and less savory elements of so much of behavior in in public parks. I mean, what somebody think of the children? I know it's controversial, but I believe I believe we should think of the children. Don't go riding in public lavatories for a good time. Call my phone number. All right, that's that's not elevated. Some of the practices that you do with your women involving. Uh, sexual mutilation and so forth. No, you can't do those. So here are the ground rules. Here are the things that uh, that you cannot do because of the values of this country here. And men, short of that, then you can live your lives as you see fit, as long as you don't interfere with the rest of us living our lives as we see fit. Yeah, well, France seems to be uh, an interesting test case. Right? You are French first, and uh, you know the, the famous picture of the police coming onto the beach, telling the woman you have to take the the burqa off. Um, this, I remember at the time. Um, I mean, people who say that race doesn't matter. I mean, just look at the outrageous curves on black women compared to Asian women. And I I mean, I've dated and had more relationships with Asian women. But I mean, black women frequently have the most outrageous curves in the world. Not that I'm really looking at those things. I'm more interested in more elevated pursuits rather than the you know less savory and more sordid pursuits. But still. Amongst young people. How could they possibly do such a thing? But of course. But of course, now we're talking about that in a very abstract sense <laughs> and in a very intellectual analytical sense. But also political power belongs to the majority in a democracy. But uh, there was a certain uh, German during the Second World War who said, we use democracy to destroy democracy. And my fear is that Western societies today have a democratic change, demo, uh, demographic change, so that the power will change, and then perhaps we will be beyond the abstract discussions of how we can live together. Because if one system takes over that is totalitarian, then I feel. Yeah, remember, if you're in a public park, you are enjoying the legacy of Robert Moses, and a terrific biography of him. It's uh, available on Audible. Hey, have you guys posted? You guys uh, posted much on on uh, Stormfront, uh, the introduce yourself thread. Have you ever posted to the introduce yourself thread on Stormfront? Here's, here's an excerpt of one. Uh, this bloke says, I did not start hating Jews till I realized they were hogging all of the hot blonde shiksas. Every night after I take my 40-minute bus ride from my job, I'm an assistant manager at McDonald's. And I find myself sitting on a bare mattress in my cold, dark, unfurnished one-room apartment. And I think about all those crafty Jews driving their Ferraris from their high-paying investment banking jobs to their mansions and coming home to their blonde shiksa wives and showering those shiksas with diamonds and rubies and emeralds and whisking those shiksas into their tastefully decorated bedrooms. I fap bitterly. Fear that democracy will be something we remember, and our children will say, "How could you accept and defend the overtake of more totalitarian states?" So, uh, when I look at my son uh, Martin, he's 16 now, then I sometimes think, "What kind of a society will we deliver?" Mm. 
if genetic similarity theory is correct, then it means that, for example, Denmark it was almost a tribe in the 60s. It was so homogeneously, genetically speaking, that everybody felt that they had something in common. Today, it is absolutely going in the wrong direction. And the, the, the proportions of the immigrant groups who are more fertile and have low IQ compared to the average in Denmark, if that goes on, you don't need to be a mathematician to say at some times, and that might be around 2070 or 2080, then the power will change. And if that power is belonging to a more totalitarian state, and these people coming there actually say, we want our system to take over democracy, then I think these very nice abstract discussions we have will end in people saying, well, didn't you see the demographic transitions taking place at the same time? Well, I mean, take the United States. You don't need to wait for the minorities to say they want a more totalitarian state. The white majority on the left is saying, and, and the far right, mm -hmm. are both much more inclined now toward accepting a authoritarian state mm -hmm. uh, than they were before. And all sorts of ways. I don't care whether it's the, the far right or the far left who takes over in the United States now. Both of them are rejecting a lot of traditional statements about what the country is all about. The problem in the United States is an awful lot of people on the center left are, are they're not speaking out against the farther left. And I'm just very pessimistic. I think the polarization is such at this point that the survival of America in a recognizable form for another 30 or 40 years is very problematic. You wrote a lot of older people have a hard time seeing civilization going on without them. The book coming apart, was that based on argumentations like that, or are there new aspects to coming apart today than the ones you discussed in your book? They are extensions of things that prompted me to write coming apart. They have gotten much worse. Uh, coming apart was published in 2012. And the situation has been deteriorating since then. An example is the Gallup poll on, uh, they've been asking the same question since the 1990s, I think. How, what would you say the state of race relations is in the United States? Uh, very good, pretty good, etc. Very high proportions of both whites and blacks, around 75%, as late as the uh, 2005, 2006, 2008, were saying they're, they're quite good or, or very good. And then, for heaven's sakes, the United States elected a black president. And they, the numbers stayed pretty much where they were, and they started to go down around 2012. They accelerated over the rest of Barack Obama's term. They continued through Donald Trump's term, and I haven't seen the last year or two. But they really, I'm talking about a very steep decline. And at the same time, you have had constant Gallup poll questions going back to the 1960s about how much do you trust the federal government to do the right thing? all of the time, most of the time, etc. Those numbers have gone from 80% around 1960 down to uh, 19, 18, 17%. So you have a country which, in which race relations have been getting much worse. And you have a country in which the trust in the federal government has, has just basically disappeared. That does not bode well. Even if you didn't know anything else, even if you didn't know all the collateral events, which, which are absolutely consistent with those two numbers, sets of numbers. And we used to say in Scandinavia that we are 10 years after you hmm. in the America. So I think we see the same. People are actually from the 
extreme right side talking about traitors in the government. That's language that we, I haven't heard that ever before. And now people are distrusting the political, some political parties to an extent that it is worrying because the whole social contract that you will protect us if we have our rights and so on is in jeopardy. And I just can't help piling on <laughs> more reasons for pessimism. Add on top of that the destruction of, of common ideas of what constitutes truth. Yeah. Uh, the American senator, uh, Pat Moynihan, before he was a senator, had a great line that he used. People are, are, everyone's entitled to his own opinion, but not to his own facts. Yeah. And when he said that, people, everybody knew what he meant. That you had to play according to the same understanding of, I got to make my argument consistent with what we both agree to be true. That's not the case anymore. People are entitled to their own facts. And they will call them facts. And they will say that countervailing evidence does, does not consist of facts, no matter how factual that countervailing evidence is. So one more, one more prop on common feeling for each other has been pulled away. Uh, yeah. I, I don't like to try and end on a note of false optimism. Okay, here's uh, more Charles Murray. This is from a year ago, talking to physicist Lawrence Krauss. Well, let, let me try to dash all of your hopes. Good. As best I can. Okay. Uh, first place, some very smart people have been working on precisely that issue. Mm -hmm. Robert Coleman has been one of the leading people who have been trying to, to, to... So how can we effectively intervene for people who genetically are getting the, the short stick in life? Figure out this non-shared environment. And he's been working on it for decades now, and they've made quite little progress, as he, he will say. But I, I, let me just offer instead two other observations. Uh, one is any parent who has had more than one child knows that those two kids had characteristics that were quite different from the sure. get-go that you recognize in the first few weeks of life in yeah. some cases. And furthermore, I think parents of more than one child recognize there is no way that they are able to change the second kid to be more like the first kid or mm -hmm. vice versa. Sure. Uh, it just, it, the impossibility of that becomes apparent pretty quickly. Oh, so I'm saying basically our experience is with these. Yeah, Lawrence Krauss looks like a very old school liberal, which is exactly what he is. Traits and their intractability generalizes to a larger population. A second thing that I would offer in terms of, of caution about what we're going to learn about the non-shared environment goes to the phenomena known as I'm getting old and I'm becoming more and more like my mother for girls and I'm more and more like my dad, like for boys, yeah. uh, more like my parents. And that is reflected in the data on heritability over time. So let's take, go back to the case of standardized test scores and IQ. Uh, the heritability of IQ uh, normally for five-year-olds is pretty low. It's mm -hmm. maybe 0 0.3, 0 0.4. And uh, it goes up. And so by adolescence, it's up around 0 0.5, 0 0.6. And by full, you know, full maturity, it can rise up near 0.8. And so you say to yourself, why should that be? Because intuitively you would say, you start out with your genes, but your environment accumulates over time and presumably the effect of the environment should accumulate over the time. Over time, The alternative is to say this, and I'm offering this as an analogy. We're way off the, this is things we don't have to argue about anymore. We can argue about this one, but I'll just present it as my, my own view I've come to. And that is that a lot of us, as we grow up, particularly in adolescence, we are consciously rebelling against 
our, our, uh, uh, our genetic tendencies because we're rebelling against our parents, we're rebelling against whatever. We do a lot of things when we're 18, 19, 20, and into, through our 20s, which are experimental. We're trying stuff. And as time goes on, we've had a form of regression to the mean, yeah. uh, which is that um, those are in a way aberrations from natural tendencies and those aberrations diminish and you generalize that statement and that can help account for the increasing heritability of IQ, of personality traits or the rest of it. This is not dispositive proof at all. It is an attempt to say we have a very well-established phenomena of increasing heritability with age. And uh, this is one way of thinking about it that might be fruitful. Okay, it's good. I, I, okay, I, I do wanna to get to the, the, now I wanna to move to sort of your thoughts about your more value judgments about how this impacts on society. But I will, I, I do want to read this uh, because it, it, um, you say it shouldn't, this, the goal, which is, 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 to, is to try and understand class structure and where it comes from, it should not obscure a larger truth. The bulk of the variance in success in life is unexplained by either nature or nurture. Researchers are lucky if they can explain half of the variance in educational achievement, attainment with measures of abilities and socioeconomic background. They're lucky if they can explain even a quarter of the variance in earned income by such measures. The takeaway for thinking about our future as individuals is that we do not live in a deterministic world ruled by either genes or social background, let alone race or gender. But Proposition 9, which is about social classes, um, is, about, is about classes, not individuals. The takeaway for thinking about the future of modern Western societies is that the role of genes is important for shaping class structures. So instead, instead of the, so it basically says we don't live in a deterministic world. It's not saying genetic determinism, but genes are significant. And in the and and in your last few, few chapters where you start to talk, about, you begin to talk about about value. And I want to give a few quotes and 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 end in the, you know we'll go on for about another five or ten minutes. Um, sure. uh, you say, I submit that the evidence is conclusive enough to warrant treating them as facts. The implication is that advanced societies have replaced one form of unfairness with another. The old form of unfairness was that talented people were prevented from realizing their potential because of artificial barriers rooted in powerlessness and lack of opportunity. The new form of unfairness is that talent is largely a matter of luck and that the few who are so unusually talented that they rise to the top are the beneficiaries of luck in the genetic lottery. The future, and then I jump ahead here, and, and that's, the, that's the end of one chapter, and you begin the next by saying, the future of the liberal arts, when you talk about the future, therefore, lies therefore in addressing the fundamental questions of human existence head on, without embarrassment or fear, taking them from the top down in easily understood language, and progressively rearranging them into domains of inquiry that unite the best of science and humanities in each level of organization. And, 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 and so the, the first statement is that basically, it is a genetic lottery, and when people talk about lucky genes, sometimes they mean the, the ones I've heard of talk about. Usually, I mean they, their parents were rich, but but your argument is that that really the and your talk and and when you get to your value judgments, that there's a real problem with society in the fact of what we do about the fact that 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 lucky genes or talent produces a, a socioeconomic class structure and what we're going to do about it. So so I want I want I want to I want you to elaborate on that concern about that constraint and what we might do as a society. Yeah, and I would also suggest to uh, people who are watching this that they read a book by Michael Sandel, who's a philosopher at Harvard, uh, called The Tyranny of Meritocracy that came yes. out uh, about a year ago, I think, and is a very thoughtful discussion of this problem. The, the, and Dick Hernstein and I were also aware of this when we wrote The Bell Curve. And if you go to the last chapter of The Bell Curve, uh, you will see a lot of what I'm about to say now. The one, of, one perfectly reasonable response to the importance of luck 
uh, in the genetic lottery is to say, well, what we need to do is, is to redistribute the world's goods uh, more effectively in a Rawlsian kind of fashion, John Rawls, uh, because the inequality is not justified by merit. That's perfectly natural response. I think that a better response is not to say that that's going to solve anything, but rather to frame the question as being one of how do you have a society which provides an abundance of valued places for people of a very broad range of abilities and characteristics uh, to fit. And by a valued place, I mean, if you were gone, people would miss you. And that can be because uh, of a family and spouse and children. It can be because of a community that would miss you. I suppose it can be because your place of employment would miss you. Uh, it can also be because your faith community will miss you. Mm -hmm. I have to introduce that. Um, was next on my list. But, uh, but, but, this is, but this is much more important. So, so in other words, I'm saying, suppose we take someone who's gotten the short end of the stick uh, on a variety of ways. They're, they're below average in IQ. They're below average in beauty. They're below average in charm. They're below average in their personal skills. They're below average in industriousness. And uh, all of these are, if you get down to it, not their fault because they were unlucky in the draw. They need a society where they are not going to get rich, uh, but they will have enough. And I will say parenthetically, I'm in favor of universal basic income. Yeah, I was going to talk, we had more time, but, I was going to talk about that, but that's uh, important. And, and, uh, but, but much more than that, much more important than the income is that they have a value place. How can you do that? You can have a society where it is widely you know, recognized and celebrated that uh, uh, marriage is a wonderful source of the most intimate human contact and family is. A society in which communities are so constructed that communities are engaged in important activities that have lots of work need to be done with them for everybody so that, that uh, you can contribute to that. You, you, you need a lot of niches for a lot of people. And now we're really getting to my own predilections. My own view is, that a decentralized, uh, not a pure libertarian society, but a very decentralized society where the action, the stuff of life is conducted at a local level to the maximum extent is the one that produces the richest assortment of valued places. Okay, let's uh, get back to discussing Ben, the ADL. This is a September 2nd Twitter space hosted by Matt Gabriel, who has the Twitter account History Speaks. This is... 50 minutes into the discussion. Totally verboten and uh, can't manage to, you know, achieve any changes at all. Like, well, but they, they aren't that verboten. I just want to ask history about that. I'm sorry to cut you off, uh, sir. Um, but uh, can we talk about Musk for a second? Yeah, I think, I think the question of how verboten they are is actually a good transition to another topic because my concern here is I don't want the right to normalize genuine racism, hatred, etc. And, and, and those words have been made cringe because the left calls everything racism. Like if you're against affirmative action, you're racist. If you want immigration restriction, you're a racist. If you think it's bad to stereotype whites, you're racist. So everything's racist. And that's a problem. Nevertheless, there does remain genuine race hatred against blacks and Jews and so on. And my concern is that this is being increasingly normalized uh, on the far right and that it could move further into the right. I mean, with, with the endorsement of this campaign by Musk and these mainstream influencers, I think that's a, that's a sign of this, unfortunately. So it's, it's, it's something I'm concerned about. Yeah. Let's take, let's take a tweet by Musk today. He says he's Okay, you're probably wondering, Forty, what does Paul Joseph Watson have to say about some of these lofty issues? Israel is set to deport all African migrants, every single one of them, and build another giant border wall to keep millions more out of the country. But wait, I thought 
Diversity was a strength. The plan was revealed following violent clashes in Tel Aviv between different groups of Eritrean asylum seekers. The running battles were fought between supporters and... Yeah, so it wasn't like these Eritrean illegal invaders of Israel were just sitting around studying the Bible. All right, they were at war and the police tried to corral them. They refused to follow police police directions, and yeah, two of them got shot and killed. Opponents of the Eritrean regime, leaving hundreds injured, including many Israeli police officers. More than 150 people were injured, including 30 police officers. Wow. So 30 police officers were injured by these thugs, and in response, they only shot and killed two of them. I would say that the Israeli police were incredibly self-restrained and disciplined in their response to these mobs. Israeli police fired tear gas, rubber bullets and stun grenades. Live rounds were also fired in the air. Netanyahu responded swiftly. The massive illegal infiltration into Israel from Africa posed a real threat to Israel's future as a Jewish and democratic state. We stopped this threat by building the fence. There remains the problem of those who had already entered before the completion of the fence. These are tens of thousands of illegal infiltrators who entered Israel. Based BB, he previously attempted to, quote, relocate many refugees into Western nations over a period of five years. Yeah, thanks for that. But when that didn't work, Israel erected a giant fence along its border with Egypt, a measure that, according to Netanyahu, quote, thereby stopped more than a million infiltrators from Africa who would have destroyed our country. But wait, they told me it was cultural enrichment. Now Netanyahu says Israel will put up another huge fence along the entire border with Jordan to ensure, quote, that there will be no infiltration from there either. We will protect our borders and we will protect our country. Interesting. Note how he's not just calling for the deportation of those who took part in the riots, but for, quote, the removal of all the other illegal infiltrators, which Israel treats as illegal economic migrants, not refugees. The development has prompted some to ask why vast numbers of African migrants making their way to Europe is treated as an inevitable necessity, despite the massive problems caused by the constant influx in terms of crime, violence, and social dislocation. Eritreans also recently staged similar riots in Germany, Norway, and Sweden. And why those who call for strict border controls in the West to protect the integrity of national identity are demonized as right-wing extremists. Yet when a relatively small number of migrants kick off in Israel, they're immediately marked for deportation, a consequence that's vital to protect the national identity of Israel. Oh, he, he's struggling to understand that. Well, guess what? People on the right, generally speaking, whether they're in Israel or France or the United Kingdom, want to deport people who are in the country illegally. It's really not that difficult of a question, Paul Joseph Watson. According to Netanyahu, criticism of Netanyahu for announcing this seemingly draconian response is minimal at best. But when Europeans call for such measures, they're immediately denounced as dangerous, great replacement conspiracy theory, white supremacists. When BB does it, well... Ah, uh, they're not by people on the right. And this is such idiocy. People on the left condemn BB Netanyahu's plans to deport Africans as well. Do you think people on the left are applauding Bibi Netanyahu? Right. I mean, have you paid any attention to the news over the last six months? The, the media fulminating against Bibi Netanyahu's government, whipping up outrage about Bibi Netanyahu's government, talking about how fascist is Bibi Netanyahu's government. Come on, That's man. Just reasonable border policy. Netanyahu wants to ultimately quote, surround the entire state of Israel with a fence. Why can't we just be more like Israel? Okay, we'll skip the, the grift. Winston Churchill. Fascinating stuff if you're a World War II buff. The letter demonstrates the... Interesting to see this history. ...specific period of history. Get letters from historical titans, including... ...cifferous opposition to anyone in the West who demands tighter border control to protect national identity. One group that has nothing to say about Netanyahu's mass deportation plan is the ADL, which previously... Ah, give it time. 
All right, give, give it time. I, I'm not up to date on all of the Anti-Defamation League's proclamations, but Jews on the left consistently condemn the Netanyahu government. Asserted that, quote, it is unrealistic and unacceptable to expect the state of Israel to voluntarily subvert its own sovereign existence and nationalist identity and become a vulnerable minority within what was once its own territory. Diver- yes, there are different strands within the ADL. The ADL isn't one monolithic organization, but there are people in the ADL who are more strongly Zionist, and there are people in the ADL who are more strongly on the left. Right? To be on the left means that you reject ethnicity and religion as the basis for nation states. And uh, the Jewish state is going to cause some problems for them. Diversity for thee, but not for me. Calling for demographic stability and national identity to be protected in Europe is hate speech. Calling for demographic stability and national identity to be protected in Israel is a progressive virtue. Tucker Carlson repeatedly pointed out... Forty's just coping about the clear double standards. Well, I made my case and you haven't been able to present any evidence that any of the allegations I made were false. So I think I made my case pretty convincingly. People on the right will generally support border walls and deporting illegal immigrants. Some Jews are on the right. Some Jews are on the left. Some non-Jews are on the right. Some non-Jews are on the left. Therefore, Jews and non-Jews who are right-wing will tend to favor immigration restriction and enforcement and deportation. Jews and non-Jews on the left will tend to be opposed to those things. So complicated. Gosh, how will I ever get my head around such a conundrum? Boy, poor Joseph Watson. He must be suffering trying to understand such complicated matters. About this glaring inconsistency when he was on Fox News. Go to the Anti-Defamation League's website sometime if you'd like a glimpse of what an unvarnished conversation about a country's national interest might look like. In a short essay posted to the site, the ADL explains why the state of Israel should not allow more Arabs to become citizens with voting rights. Quote, with historically high birth rates among the Palestinians and a possible influx of Palestinian refugees and their descendants now living around the world, the ADL explains, Jews would quickly become a minority within a binational state, thus likely ending any semblance of equal representation and protections. In this situation, the Jewish population would be increasingly politically and potentially physically vulnerable. In the words of the ADL, why would a government subvert its own sovereign existence? And for his sins, he was then subjected to a relentless deplatforming campaign by the ADL, which later celebrated Tucker being kicked off Fox News. Recall this is the same group that claims anti-Antifa images are hate speech. Ooh, but how the tables have turned. The hashtag ban the ADL has been trending on X, Twitter, for days. With Elon Musk threatening to run a poll in response to questions as to why top Twitter execs are still meeting with ADL lobbyists. And the group openly organized an advertiser boycott in an attempt to destroy Twitter after Elon took over. Literally saying that Twitter was on a death watch because Elon dared to suggest it might restore free speech. ADL has tried very hard to strangle ex-Twitter, said Musk. Also noting how it was interesting that the ADL's Jonathan Greenblatt sounded like Musk himself on the issue of free speech as recently as 2016. We at the ADL and me personally deeply agree. You can't outlaw bad ideas. You can't outlaw hate. You, you just can't. We think the best response to bad ideas or bad speech are better ideas and better speech. And the ADL hashtag posters are demanding to know why a lobby group for a foreign government gets to decide what Americans are allowed to say. On- okay, the Anti-Defamation League is not primarily a lobby group for Israel. That's a small part of what it does. It, it's primarily a ethnic lobby group, you know, for Jews in, in America, and they try to use the the platform, the rubric, the, the blanket of just fighting bigotry, which, of course, is absurd because, you know, one man's bigotry is another man's harsh truth. So they are a left-wing lobby group. On social media, after the Israeli government 
in between threatening to mass deport African immigrants, decried the hashtag and threw its support behind the ADL. In a statement responding to the hashtag campaign, the ADL itself drew attention to its history of supporting diverse people of colour minority groups in America, vowing to continue to fight hate to protect marginalised minorities. Except for the Eritreans in Israel, because they don't count. Okay, he makes a lot of good points, but uh, lacks the, the depth of knowledge that Forty brings to the show. Right, uh, back to History Speaks, hosting this Twitter space on the Ban the ADL hashtag campaign. going to run a poll about Ban the ADL. So what, what does that even mean? He's going, to, he's going to run a poll about whether he should ban the ADL? This is crazy. Yeah, I mean, he could even uh, put that he will abide by it. Should, should, should he ban the ADL? And he, say, he could say he will abide by the poll results. Yeah, he, he says I will abide. You know, I, part of this, though, I have to say is like, yeah, I, I totally, I'm with you, Diaz, but the, these organizations are really bad at, at their supposed uh, mission, like combating hate. Like, they, they don't know how to, they do not know how to engage people on the right. And frankly, that's where you need to be engaged because uh, contrary to like, in my view, contrary to like propaganda from, from some members of the Jewish community, the actual Jew hatred is definitely from the right, the hard right, not the regular right. You know? right. Not like average Trump supporters, but the far right. And they have to engage the right and debunk these Jew memes and say, no, it isn't the Jews' fault that all these bad things happen. But they don't have, they have no idea how to talk to them. And they talk, frankly, to these people in the most alienating fashion. You know, think, well, Mike, you think it's just impossible to team up with people that hate you? I mean, in politics, I mean, you're half Egyptian, you know, politics and coalitions that like as a Jew, you could openly team up with people who hate you and just like, look, can't, can't, have interest. we need to win here. I know you don't like me. I don't it, know it, it, hate, hate me personally or even like like have made derogatory comments about my heritage. I would not. I honestly could. The answer is yes. But I think when you're talking about people who exterminated like your, your kin, I mean, to me, if I were Jewish, I would see that as just so pathetic and gross that no, I couldn't do it. Uh, yeah, and I, 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 I couldn't do it, frankly, as, as myself, because I, these people are, are hateful. And I don't think we should have hate. And again, these words have been ruined by the left. But actually hating other people, other citizens based on ethnic origin is socially irresponsible and bad. We shouldn't be promoting that. You know, again, the left says it's hate to talk about crime differential. Right. I mean, they say everything's hate. History, but, let me, can I ask you a question? Yeah. So would you prefer if you could quit, uh, hit a switch right now and all the people that do research, that do uh, data research at and polling and journalism and investigating investigations at SPLC and ADL, they all had to go work at Starbucks tomorrow, and those organizations were completely gone. Would you click that switch? I think I would, yeah. Um, I don't like saying that because, because, look, these guys are so ideological, though. We should have people researching extremists. We should have people fighting hate. But these people are so ideological. So ADL released a definition of racism that says it defines it as white people being bad, apparently. So, like... <laughs> and uh, chat says, Matt... The host of this space praises mass murderer Kamal Ataturk at heart. Matt is anti-white, nothing more. That's absurd. I mean, you can praise Ataturk for creating, you know, the modern, what was a secular state of Turkey. Ataturk was a band of tremendous accomplishment. I'll, I'll stand here and praise many things that Ataturk has done. Among the things that Ataturk has done, you say, is mass murder. Okay, I'm not up on all things Ataturk to the extent... I know anything about Kamal Ataturk. He strikes me as a great leader. Does that make me anti-white? It's just so ridiculous. It's well, can you defend totally that? Why should you have people fighting hate? Why isn't it their right to hate us? Can you say like, okay, no, it is their right to hate. But, but organizations should be combating that and debunking that. They should they don't be have a guy like hate us. Follow up the follow up. Because like, you just said that you don't think they. I mean, it's Matt, by the way. Right. They don't have a right to hate us. No, I never said they want the right to hate. You just said fighting hate. Why should Matt, we fight? No, but hate? you can fight hate. I'm fighting hate with this space. I'm trying to at least. Maybe I'm successful. Matt. But let me let me respond to you a bit first. You can fight hate without Why saying, fight okay, hate? I'm a hall monitor now. We can t- I'll answer that. I'm a hall monitor now and I'm going to ban you, dude, because I think you're hateful. There's a difference between that and saying, okay, I'm going to debunk these memes that Jews 
condone child molestation. There is a, there, or I mean, like debunk Holocaust denial. There is a difference between that approach and I'm the hall monitor now, and I get to ban everybody whom I consider hateful. Those are very different points. I, so I think that I think the the idea of fighting defamation of Jews is is an honorable one, but. You can't, the honor, in my view, turns into dishonor when these people are trying to shut down those they consider hateful and also when they're redefining hate in absurd ways to, to conform to like mainstream liberal culture. So that's kind of I, my I have a question actually for you. Uh, yeah. So I, I think the, the whole monitor approach obviously has its uh, negatives, but can we really be sure that the, the, debu- like the debunking and arguing against it approach uh, is actually more effective? Because it seems like, you know, Twitter, I guess you could say what's been happening on Twitter is kind of an experiment in that. And it sort of seems like the, you know, total, like, I guess, you know, just the nature of the internet in general is just a totally uh, unsubstantiated claims, lies, et cetera, spread way faster than any, like, refutation of them ever could. Uh, so I think, I don't know, it seems like uh, that the, they're, they're, unless there's, like, some alternative, like, middle ground between, like, I guess, the hall monitor approach and the... Uh, well, what what does hall monitor the, even mean? You mean researching groups and then do... Uh, well, when I say hall monitor, like I mean, like, that, the tweet that, So the tweet like, that Greenblatt, that, that, that is being used in the, in the propaganda by the Nazis, was... To me, in my view, you may disagree with DS, other people on the left may disagree with me. He sounded very obnoxious and pompous and effete. He's saying, oh, we've had a good conversation and we're going to talk about what works and what doesn't on the Internet. I mean, he just sounds like so entitled and so righteous. Wait, so he had a meeting with the quote-unquote CEO of Twitter, Linda, whatever. Yeah, and talk about combating hate and what works and what doesn't on Twitter. And he said we're going to vigorously or some word like monitor what's going on if they don't. If they don't do, he implies what we want them to do. We're gonna, we reserve our right to criticize. And, no, but ADL has, has engaged. But they meet with corporate leaders all the time. Here's my question. So you want you would you would prefer the ADL and SPLC just vanish tomorrow? Are there any? I think it'd be better for, for free speech and yeah. for Jews. I'm- and uh, Colin Waddell says all Aussies should hate Ataturk for what he did to their boys at Gallipoli. Well, Ataturk was fighting for his people and for his nation, and he was a very effective leader. So. You can also respect the, the way that he organized his, his people. I'm convinced that this sure. organization does not. Think as a think tank, um, you're saying vanish as a lobbying, uh, as an activist. No. Yeah, my preference makes a good point. My preference would be that they continue to exist but lose all their lobbying power. No, no, okay. Listen, my question was just which, so which, if those didn't exist, so which ones, which groups that research extremism or whatever you want to call it, however you want to put it that way, do you like? I think the industry has been thoroughly corrupted by. With it is with the university system generally, with woke liberalism. You don't like the SPLC's reports? You don't like the, I like the ADL's reports and SPLC's reports. I just don't like their lobbying. I, mean, I, so don't, I don't read their literature very much. So there's not even any organization that you like that does that? I can't think of one. It could be my ignorance. Uh, but, but I think these organizations have been deeply corrupted by... Uh, by they basically are, are, are left-wing organizations. Because like, they fight and research. If they just research, like, yeah, their research is valuable. And I don't know who thinks that people have a right to hate. People have a right to organize in their hatred. We're not talking about the legal. Crime, we're not hate. talking about legal rights. This is not like a constitutional law discussion. Well, I mean, I mean so am I the only one here saying, like, like I have to stand up and, like, Keith Woods can hate me as much as he wants. He has every right to hate me however much he wants. Nicholas Fuentes has every yeah, right to organize amendment, yeah. against we're us good. as yeah, much Yeah, but we shouldn't be aligning and empowering them politically. When Elon Musk likes this, he, def- he is validating and normalizing Woods to some extent. He should not be doing that. That's my position no, because Woods is a, is a neo-Nazi. Because it's about politics and winning. I mean, saying that you're a Jew and you're on the side. No, it's not about being a Jew. It's about debate. you know, Musk isn't Jewish, so you know, like the. But so I don't what you're saying anyway. But like the, Listen, the ADL is trying to hamper uh, his ability to profit and do what he wants with Twitter. He's a Jewish organizations that are scared of anti-Semitism are hampering what he wants to do with Twitter. So, so I just want to be clear. I just want to be clear. There was a Nazi march in Florida today, a large one, in Orlando. And Large, like the, ten people or like a thousand and, and people, and then and 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 you're and the, so the and you guys wish there was no ADL 
the most the biggest organization that researches anti-Semitism extremism. Is that correct? I don't mind this thing. No, I don't, ADL's not going to do anything. They're just a tattletale organization. Okay. Like saying, like, buy a gun, join the JDL, if you're, you know, join the IDF. So ADL's not going to help you in that sense, like fight crime. And even, yeah, if the Nazis want to protest, it's their right to protest. If they want to harm me, I got a right to use lethal force in my defense. How do you expect the ADL to use the research? It's a think tank. They should separate it. Just do the research, put it out there, and, uh, and they shouldn't be involved in lobbying. And then if they are involved in lobbying, then they're going to have enemies and saying that the ADL and the enemies are going to team up. It's logical to team up with... But, the, but again, again, Duvid, you're, you're obscuring... You, you, you have addressed it, but you're not, I don't think, appreciating the issue, which is not the substance of... Which, by the way, I disagree with the substance of, of, of banning them from Twitter. But the uh, it isn't the substance. It's, is it responsible for mainstream political figures and the richest man in the world to endorse, neo -Nazi, to, to, to endorse a political campaign led by neo-Nazis? And my view is, is emphatically no. If you abstract it, is it moral? Is it okay to team up with the violent end of your political spectrum? Is it okay to team up with questionable characters for a common cause? Before I go, I just want to ask one uh, last question because I know why you guys are on the right. So uh, this is a genuine question, if I may. And it's open to any speaker. How much of the right do you, if a gun to your head percentage-wise, would you put into this strongly anti-Semitic, Nazi, whatever you want to call it, category, if, if you had to say number Less one. than 10%. I'm not sure, but it's definitely, it's definitely growing. Um, I think 5%, 7%. It's, and I think that the, the percentage, so I think that the percentage that are into this stuff is higher. I think the percentage that are tolerant of it is also higher. So the if you put tolerant of it, even right. people who may not believe it, but they're tolerant and open to it, I think you get up to maybe 20%. Um, so yeah, that's why yeah. well, I want to fight it. I think it's Inter growing. That's interesting. Anybody else, please, I'd love to hear their numbers. Uh, I'd say it probably depends on the age bracket. So if like it's old boomers, probably uh, very low, probably like maybe 2%. Uh, people... I, I don't know, like 18 to 29, or I mean, realistically, all these people are age, maybe like 15 to 25 percent. Very, that's very perceptive. That you, that that's how I would ask the question. That's very perceptive. Yeah, I would agree with what uh, I think that was Hero who was saying that. I'd agree with him that it's more common among the younger uh, right, and it's pretty disturbing. And it's hard to get. It, it honestly is hard to get get, get uh, right wing Jews to take it seriously because they're obsessed with like these parochial interests, like you know, oh my God, there's like mentally ill homeless people uh, committing crimes in my neighborhood and urinating on everything, and like. Maybe these Nazis will go and do something about it. I mean, that's sort of what I hear when I hear Duvid talk is like, you do. Like, like, they have the right to hate us. That's what you're saying. That's what it means to be no, on the right no, wing. They I have the right I to hate us. You didn't just say they have the right to hate us. You said we should align with them because my neighborhood smells like pee because there are homeless people peeing on stuff and shoplifting. No, align with them on issues or politics because politics, you got to get over 50 Yeah, because, you know, like, uh, shoplifting and petty crime is, you know, a bigger deal than, you know, uh, I don't know, people who want to exterminate all Jews in a holy war. I mean, if, if it came down to, if, if let's say Elon Musk puts it up and he says he does the survey, <laughs> should they ban the ADL and he will abide by the results? And the saying, well, should right-wing Jews and Orthodox Jews and Catholic Jews vote yes, even though it was organized by anti-Semites? I was saying, yeah, I think a lot of right-wing Jews, Orthodox Jews would vote yes to ban the ADL, even though it was organized by anti-Semites. Wait, dude, you do realize that your whole position is completely archaic, right? Like, you realize that, like, you're living in the past here, right? I mean, the average American, like, the average upper-middle-class white American or your Latino American or whatever is completely insulated from crime. They, like, live behind gates. There's there's video cameras. They can They can insulate themselves from crime. And so, like, He's concerned. They don't even like affect people anymore. Um, somebody like Elon Musk doesn't have to worry about. That's absurd. <laughs> I mean, everyone's vulnerable. Everybody hurts. All right. Yeah. Some Americans are more vulnerable and other Americans are less vulnerable. But if you live or operate or work or enter big cities, uh, of course, you're going to be vulnerable to crime. Street crime. He doesn't care about cash free bail. None of this stuff affects him. I mean, uh, you know, it's true that crime has gone up in the last, like, five, six years, but it's also true that... Uh, Elon Musk never has to walk down the street of a city. Uh, of course this affects him. People, like, a lot of people are just completely insulated from it. Except and like the Mexican Hasidic Jews. Nobody's completely insulated from it unless they never leave their home. 
And even then, there are enough home invasions in rich areas that uh, you're not completely insulated from this, you know, vice, vast, you know, uptick in crime. The, the one people yeah, well, I mean, say from what, the, what, or that's what, why they would vote together. Yeah, yeah, with... do it, do it, do it. Can I finish? Okay, like that. Yeah, Orthodox and Hasidic Jews are not insulated from it, but you know, people like Fuentes and Keith Woods are completely insulated from street crime. Like they, like uh, Fuentes lives like way out in the suburbs of Chicago, uh, in like a nice like exurban neighborhood, and like there's no crime in his neighborhood, and none of this stuff affects him. So he uh, he even said he. Even... That's absurd. The idea that none of this stuff affects him. I mean, the number of people who love to take a swing at Nick Fuentes is probably you know in the hundreds. He said, you know, like he even makes fun of like white people like who do the whole like um, 1353 memes. He's like, oh, just move to another neighborhood oh like you know he i mean so i, I just think you're living in the past like like the, are you disagreeing with my point that republican right-wing jews orthodox jews Hasidic jews would vote yes on this uh if it lands no, even I though it was agree. organized by these no people. i don't agree with you i don't agree with you on this issue because it's not being driven by the things that you're concerned about it's being driven by anti-semitism like sometimes that the people are like yeah i've been waiting decades for the chance to get rid of the adl i don't care if it was nicholas Fuentes and keith woods that put it up there i will vote yes all right. I mean, that's your perspective. Sorry, I want to ask. Uh, I want to ask Matt something. Go ahead. Sure. Uh, yeah. So earlier, you said that the ADL um, does the thing where they kind of like conflate all uh, like anti-Zionism, and, like criticism of Israel as being anti-Semitic. Um, does the ADL actually do that? Yeah. Because, uh, like, Greenblatt, yeah. Greenblatt has said explicitly. Let me make sure that I get the quotation. But uh, Green, Greenblatt has said explicitly, anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism. And these are just you can say anti-Zionism. I mean, if you disagree with 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 criticism of Zionism. You can say it's uh, naive or you disagree with it. You think they're dumb, but uh, I guess we're dumb because I have that position. But it is, this is not the same phenomenon as true hatred. I think it's irresponsible. to okay. them. So like think the, It's another thing that dilutes, it's another thing that dilutes, um, uh, you know, the um, the punch of the charge of anti-Semitism. I mean, all these terms have been diluted in effectiveness if you call someone it because of the left, essentially. And also, but I think also because of this this other factor where, like, you know, uh, some more conservative Jews have said everyone is um, anti-Semitic, who's, who's you know, critical of the, of the ideology behind the, the foundation of, of Israel. So. But doesn't the... Um... Okay, that will do it for now. Take care. Bye-bye.